Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back, everyone, to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I hope you're ready. I'm Alan Williams, right here next to the man, the myth, the legend, the James DiVirgilio. James, how you feeling now? Are you stoked? My level of excitement is is low. <laughs> I, have, I have to be real. I know I've been like a Debbie Downer to so many of you listeners and to my friends, and I'm here. So just expect it from me. I'm not that excited. This is the maybe the least excited I've been on opening day, maybe ever, and and. I'm certainly more excited than I was last year, relatively speaking. But like all in all, I just find myself in this complete and deep malaise. I don't know if someone's been slipping some stuff into my Kool-Aid, uh, but I'm I'm getting more excited by the day. And I could come crashing down to earth on you know a week from today after the first game, but we'll see. Guys, we got a great episode for you. We're going to break down the state of the program. We're going to look at every position group. We're going to get you ready to go so when you show up at the Swamp or you're watching on TV that you feel like you know what's going on. We're going to hear from Blake Alderman, our recruiting guru. We're going to look at Charleston Southern a little bit and talk about all the stuff you need to know. James, thanks some people for us. I want to thank some some patrons. It's been a great summer. We did a few episodes. I know we trickled a few out once a month. We had a good time doing it. And uh, for us, we just want to thank all of you that are supporting us on Patreon. And if you like the show, drop us a like on Facebook or consider supporting us on Patreon. Uh, currently, right now, Alexander Leventhal is our is our largest donor the man. every single month. He's he's the number one guy. So we're gonna we're gonna continue to thank him for that. We appreciate that, Alexander. Then we have some we have some new blood: Evan Fitzgerald, our good friend Eric Mutz, my good buddy Joshua Javahari. Thanks, guys, for joining. And then we have Josh Paul, who upped his contribution to the show. We appreciate that, Joel. Thank you very much. We'll thank some more patrons later on the show. We want to give you guys some love. We really appreciate it. Uh, again, if you like what you hear on this episode. Definitely consider liking us on Facebook or supporting us on Patreon. We appreciate everything that you guys do for us, and we love doing the show for you guys. James, it's the dawning of the Dan Mullen era. Give me your feelings about the state of the program. All right, you're the president. You're giving the State of the Union here. Tell me, is the State of the Union strong? No, it's certainly <laughs> it's certainly very weak, but that's not that's not a surprise. The state of the program, though, is, is better. So I mentioned that my excitement level is low, and that's partly because of how I view this season, which we're going to unpack in this upcoming episode. But the state of the program is vastly improved from where it was last year. At the helm, you have a guy who was an excellent head football coach in the SEC. Previous to that, he was an excellent coordinator in the SEC. Uh, tons of experience in the SEC. I'm going to keep saying that because that's important. And I think that if you're looking at who you want to be commanding your troops right now, 
Mullen is an excellent candidate for that. And you can see that from his press conferences to how he handles people around town. There's an air of professionalism that has not been here in a long time. You had inexperience with a must champ. You had tremendous inexperience and just a lack of people skills with McIlwain. You do not have that with Mullen. And I think the state of the program is in much safer and more stable hands. The question becomes, like we've been asking, is what is the ceiling for a guy like Dan Mullen. And we're going to have to figure that out. But the program certainly on much better footing. The tactical one-year outlook, probably not super great. But we should we should really improve this year. And that's something I think I haven't been able to say in a podcast in a while, is I do expect this team to get better as the year goes on. I think stability is a good keyword here. And maybe that's the not the sexiest word. But it's important for this program right now. I don't think Dan Mullen was surprised by anything when he walked in the door. He knew exactly what to expect, where to go from the fan base to the offices to everything. He knows our athletic director. He's been here. He's been a head coach in the SEC, as you said. So stability. I I think we had hopes that the team would improve in the past, but I feel fairly confident the team is going to be solid this year. And again, we've talked repeatedly about you know, our preferences for higher ceilings or maybe bringing in someone who would bring, inject a level of excitement. And I think that's, that's not really, people aren't brimming with excitement right now, but I think people are hopeful because the program should be on, as you said, a firmer foundation. And that's important for where we've been. It's maybe the most necessary thing. I don't, I think the percentage chance that the season's going to go off the rails and we're going to have like a million people suspended and, we're losing to people we should have no business losing to is, is much smaller than it is in the past. I won't say it's not possible because we've seen the impossible happen here. Uh, but I would say the status program is stable, and that's probably good news. And then flowing from what it looks like entering this year, we have stability, yes. But this year, start the season unranked. Yep. Last year we started 17th. That was a that was a poor choice by the the AP voters, <laughs> but not a not a crazy one. There was not, there was some reasons why that that could be true. Uh, and so we're not ranked. We've had two. Let me just let this settle into your brain here. Two four win seasons in the past five seasons. That's unreal. That is actually unbelievable. Every time I read that, I really can't believe it. And to pour more rain on this on this was what's you know once what was once a sunny parade the opening <laughs> the opening game for the Gators uh this is the worst season ticket sale oriented period that the Gators have had in the modern era so going all the way back to Steve Spurrier's first year we have sold less football tickets percentage wise of the stadium than we ever had before so there are a lot of good seats available but i think that indicates a couple of things you have a rising ticket price in athletic departments across the country, including Florida's, when you have a declining product. And then overall, Alan, you have declining interest in live college football. We've talked about this before. Uh, a lot of people like myself think that has heavily to do with pricing. Mm-hmm. They're pricing themselves out of the market for the average fan. The average fan sits at home, watches the game in HD, saves gas, parking, hotel, etc. cetera. Uh, but regardless, there's not a lot of excitement for the majority of Gator fans coming into this season. I think we're all excited for a new football season. I know I am. I am extremely excited about college football being back. But as a Gator, I'm I'm more or less neutral. So we have this stability, but we also, Allen, seem to have an unranked team. Vegas has us pegged at seven wins. Most Gator fans are worried about the recruiting. They're worried about the quarterback play. They're not, I mean, it's just not really 
a super exciting time right now. I think this also has something to do with this home schedule. It is an incredibly soft home schedule in terms of exciting games. The only one you would point you would point to would be LSU, and even that, you know, I don't think LSU is the sexiest team right now under Coach O. I, so I think a lot of factors coming into play. You just mentioned a few important ones, and then I think the schedule will be part of it. I, I think there's a lot of wait and see. I mean, Gator fans have been burned a little bit, as someone said in an. I can't remember where I heard this. Florida fans could be like, wake me up when we win the 10th game. You know, then I'll be excited. I don't think there's that. I think people are intrigued by just us being like an exciting team and we're not there yet. So I think people will get on board if we're going to see the type of team they want to on the field. You know, Dan Mullen wants to make Florida fun again. That's a significant quest. And if he succeeds at that, I think you're going to see people jumping on the bandwagon. Let me let me just do a quick contrasting example here. All right, imagine that Scott Frost is our head coach right now. Mm-hmm. How does that change how you feel about this podcast this season? How do you think it changed for the the general population of Gator fans? I think it would up the excitement level significantly, but inherent in excitement is the chance for failure. So excitement with Scott Frost is like, man, he could be. We have no idea. He could literally be the best coach in college football history, or he could kind of fall on his face. I don't think either of those two things are in play with Dan Mullen. And that's why it's less exciting because the, the avenues of possibility are somewhat closed. And I don't know, you know, would I rather actually have some stability? Maybe other days I'd rather have the excitement. I don't know. I think you, you nailed that perfectly. I mean, that, that was, there couldn't be a better answer to that question that encapsulates exactly the scenario, high risk, high reward with Frost, and the Nebraska fans are beside themselves with excitement yeah. and enjoy. They have rejuvenated the program. And in Florida, all you do is get a guy who did things that no one has ever done at a program like Mississippi State in the history of the SEC. And his reward for that is me basically dogging him every <laughs> single week on this podcast. I recognize those things, but it is because of how you said it. There's a certain boring consistency that he's brought. Um, that I think is is needed at this program. It's needed for sure, but it's also not like you mentioned going to put you in this fervor, uh, at least not yet. And he could surprise a lot of us, and we could be totally role reversing that. Uh, but we're going to break this this program today into two pieces. First half, we're going to go through sort of the season preview. So we're going to talk about the team and the roster, the position groups, who we think is strong, who we think is weak. We'll do some over unders. Uh, look at kind of expectations for the year. And then the second half, we're going to look at the actual game prep this week for Charleston Southern, talk specifically about uh, Felipe Franks, who's named our starting quarterback, and kind of get into what we really do on this show. I think for most of you listeners, the lifeblood of this show and what makes us unique is how we look at the football games themselves. And since we don't have any football games yet, this episode tends to be more of let's get you ready for this upcoming game. And then next week, you know, we come back with sort of the hard-hitting analysis. So with that being said, Alan, as our personnel guy, I'm going to walk you through the position groups here. We are going to go in order of strongest group, in our opinion, to weakest group, and we're going to start with the offense. We think, both of us agree, that we think the running backs are are the best group here in the offense. Alan, walk us through them and then give us a grade. I think this is a really interesting group. It's a really deep group, and it's kind of a diverse one as well. At the head of the pack, you've got our boy Jordan Scarlett, who returns to the team, looks like he's going to be ready to carry a big workload. Guys like Malik Davis, Michael P. Ryan, 
some familiar faces and some younger guys, some freshmen, some guys you saw sparingly last year, like Lemons, a really strong group, strong enough that they took a guy who's a pretty high recruit and moved him over to safety for depth, uh, at least during camp. So I think you'll see a lot of production out of this group. It could be stellar. If Malik Davis and Jordan Scarlett are who we think they can be, this could be a really electric group of backs. Yeah, for me, it has to come down to how how good our offensive line plays, and we'll get to them soon. But this is certainly, as you just said, Alan, without a doubt, the most talented group of running backs we have had in the program in a very, very in long a while. time. Since maybe the Spurrier days. I, I don't know. I mean, Urban has some good backs, but, you know, think about, uh, you know, you would have Fred Taylor and a bunch of other guys who he was splitting time with in the 90s. I don't think that this group is that, like, rich and in depth, but... This is a pretty stellar group. Give them a grade. I'm going to say A. And that's a, you know, an A for this program where we're headed, not maybe A all time. So that's going to be how I feel about the relative strength of this group. Yeah, certainly. I, I agree with that assessment entirely. Uh, wide receivers, we think, second strongest group here. Not as proven right. as the running backs, but a lot of potential here. The transfers, Van Jefferson and Trevon Grimes, give this group a whole different dynamic and depth. You've got guys like Tyree Cleveland and Kadarius Toney. A lot of versatile guys, again, high on potential and less on production. We said this actually about this group last year, and largely, I think, through the offensive line, the quarterback, they disappointed. And some of that was injury to Tony in Cleveland. But this group could be stellar. Uh, I'm going to give them right now a B+. Yeah, this is the most talented wide receiver group we've had in a very, very long time as well. So this is... This is new to me on this podcast. Since we've done this podcast, I have yet to do two position groups on the offense where I've been able to say this, but here we are, which is good. That's good. That's solid. That's progress in and of itself. There's not a lot of production there yet, and unfortunately for us, there may not even be a lot of production this year. And there's a a narrative here, Alan, where the receivers could do great this year and not produce a lot. Mm -hmm. That's a possible outcome, one that I'm potentially afraid of, but I think it's safe for me to say I expect our receivers to run routes, and block well this year. And I think we have the talent, finally, where you've got five or six guys that can all play uh, at high, at the high level in the SEC. These are not just guys. These are talented guys that can make a difference. I look forward to seeing them. I'm most excited for me about this personnel group. Most excited about them. All right, offensive line. I think for me, this is going to be the most important unit this season, uh, primarily because our quarterbacks are unproven and, in my opinion, ineffective. We need this line to allow us to run the ball well. We're going to have to have the game plan I dislike so much, which is a heavy dose of Dan Mullen running, but I recognize we need that this year to win games. Uh, What do you see from this line? We've returned eight guys. We've got tons of experience there. We don't have a lot of high-profile talent, but what do you think of this line coming in this year? Well, you know these guys. They were the same group that's disappointed you the last two years for the most part. Now, a lot of them are seniors and juniors. There's no more excuses. Everyone's relatively healthy. Uh, We might see a change at center. We can get to that in the game prep. But this should be a solid unit. Uh, McElwain was touting them as a potential strength of the team last year, and obviously we saw by the first drive against Michigan that was not going to be the case. They've largely disappointed, but there's still room for them to turn it around. Um, Enough depth and enough talent there that this could be – a decent group. I, 
It's kind of like, though, I don't know. They've already like disappointed me several times. I don't want to go out on a limb. I'm going to give them a B minus, but they have the potential to move up much higher. I think there's a lot of excitement here uh, with regards to John Hevesy being our offensive line coach and the fact that we should see what most people think will be a significant improvement in offensive line play. He's not a good recruiter. He's known as a great offensive line coach, and we do have a lot of experienced pieces, which is something we haven't had before. We have it now. This group has got to play above their potential if we want to have an above-average season this yes. season. I think you can watch them, and that's almost going to dictate how we do this year. I think they're that integral to what happens to us. Okay, going down to the next weakest group, we have the tight ends. Tight ends have been just a ginormous question mark for us. Uh, a couple of years ago, they were sky high in our radar. We thought they were going to just break out year, and they pretty much did nothing. Uh, coming into this season, we know that Dan Mullen likes tight ends, wants tight ends to be involved in the offense. What do you see going on tight end position this season? Man, I, I'm a little worried about it. There's some guys who seem like they could, I don't know, add some juice to this, but they're unproven. Either they're freshmen or they're transfers or they're maybe new to the position. The guys we're going to try it out there, I think, are maybe fine, serviceable, not will not screw things up. But at least right now, headed into game one, uh, this is a thoroughly average group. I, there's a potential, again, for this group to improve as the younger guys get more acclimated to the position. But right now, I'm going to give it a C. Yeah, that seems almost a little rosy. I mean, especially when you look at the film last year, our tight ends were woeful blockers. Uh, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to say that wasn't entirely due to coaching, uh, but there's a lot that would, they would have to do, I think, to prove really anything to us. And, and if you look on paper at their recruiting level and kind of who's got reps and who's ready for college football – it's not exactly a rosy picture at the tight end position. That is an important position in this offense. So that's one to watch this season. And lastly, we sadly get to quarterbacks, which has been a a long and, and, and just frustrating journey for us, especially on this podcast. Quarterbacks are the weakest group. Uh, Alan, give me a grade. Give me the breakdown. What are, you, what are you thinking this season? Okay. We've talked about these guys a lot. You know the names. Felipe Franks, Kyle Trask, and Murray Jones. Felipe named the starter. And I don't know what to expect from any one of the three. And that's the problem. If you want to paint the rosiest picture, you could say that each of them could potentially play really well if given the chance. And all three could fall flat on their face. Um, we do have some experience with Felipe. And the other two have never taken a snap. So maybe you'll find this grade too high. I'm going to give him a C-, minus, uh, just because... We do have a guy who took some snaps in the SEC last year. Yeah, that seems like an extremely friendly grade. I feel like, for <laughs> me, the quarterbacks are, are going to be an F until they do something otherwise to prove that they're not an F. And so today on our thread, Alan and I have a text thread with several friends. It's, it's, <laughs> to me, it really brings me a lot of joy in the midst of sadness when it comes to Gator football. But the news gets announced on Monday, and, and the messages start flying. And essentially, it's just it's a bunch of gifts of people jumping out windows, jumping off bridges, just sort of like the sadness that Felipe Franks is quarterback. But what's interesting here, and we talked a lot about this under McElwain, especially going back to Will Greer, I trust that Dan Mullen is making a competent decision here. And we've said this before. We thought it would be Franks. This is not a surprise to us. No. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that Dan Mullen thinks Franks is good. And I think listening to his press conference, he indicates that. 
He does not say that Franks is going to be the guy going forward in the future, even though he's said multiple times he wants to select a guy to do it. And he's very careful to say, I'm not saying this guy's going to be the best guy later on the season. Uh, he's very quick to say that he's not there yet. So I think he understands that he's not really liking any of his quarterbacks now. I imagine he wishes Emery would have come further along, but by all accounts, he's still pretty far away. Uh, and that that's a disappointment. You see a lot of other true freshman quarterbacks starting. Scott Frost has done nothing but rave about his true freshman quarterback in Nebraska, the exact guy he wanted, the guy he needs to run the offense, expects him to do well. We do not have that here at Florida. We do not have that. And I think Emory Jones is a pull for Dan Mullen, but that also was almost like a, I have to get a guy yeah. to fit the system. I think he's I think he's not there. And so for me, the quarterback room is is not what you want it to be. I think Mullen indicates that as a coach. Franks has been so bad on every piece of film study I've ever done on him. And I know that Dan Mullen's a great quarterback coach, but it is hard for me to imagine that he can all of a sudden make competent reads. We're going to find out. We're not going to find out this Saturday. We're going to find out. And then in the first two games, we'll be able to tell you. But for me, an F until they start to show me something else. And that could be partially just because I have post-traumatic stress from from years of, of suckery. Well, James, hold on. Let me ask you. You said, I think, in the spring sometime... If Emory Jones is not the starter week one, this is like a total failure. Do you still stand by that? Yeah, I mean, I do. That's that's what we talked about when we got him. I mean, that was that was what he wanted. And I think Dan Mullen is is very professional about handling that. But I have to imagine that if you had talked to Dan Mullen when he signed him, he would have said the same thing we just said. This guy's got to be my guy. I've got him for the spring. I've got him for the fall. All he has to do is beat out a quarterback who's been nothing but putridly terrible. And he didn't do it. And I think, again, by all accounts, some people that go to practice, and I've only seen two of them, uh, but that are aware of the program, Emory's just not anywhere near ready yet. And that's unfortunate. And you, that, that's what you do as a coach. There's a reason why you try to recruit multiple quarterbacks. I'm not going to hang that on Dan Mullen, but just like I said, then I'll say now, Felipe Franks is not created on this offense. It is a terrible fit for Felipe Franks. Felipe Franks is an excellent athlete. Uh, for those of you that don't know, he's a fantastic athlete. I mean, there's no doubt about that. The guy can can do a lot athletically, but this is not the kind of offense for him. It's just not. And so that's not ideal. Uh, Emory Jones, this is the offense for him, and he's just not ready. And so I do stand by that situation. That that was the worst-case scenario for us. This is the worst-case scenario for us right now. It creates a murky path going forward. It creates a fan base that's constantly looking over Frank's shoulder to see Emory Jones. It creates all the things that you don't want to have exist in the program. And Mullen would only do that if he really felt like he was choosing between three not-so-great choices in the near term, which is what he did. Uh, and I think that's where we are. So let's flip Let's flip sides of the ball to the defense. Defense last year took a ginormous step back. It was the worst defense we've had in many, many, many years here at Florida. This year, uh, there's some great spots and some spots that we have question marks on. We'll start with our strength. This has been our strength every single year for a long time now, our defensive line. Tell us about them, Alan. All right, so for the purposes of this discussion, I'm going to consider our rush, like, buck end, like, the position populated by C.C. Jefferson and Jachai Polite and those guys as the D-line since they're going to spend the majority of their time rushing. And when you include those guys into that group, this is an incredibly strong group with a ton of potential and a lot of proven guys. Uh, you'll see, I think, a, a ton of guys get a spot at that rush end. You've got guys like Zabari, Jabari Zuniga, Slayton, Conliffe, and even some guys who are behind them like Clark and Ankrum, who've played games, who played meaningful snaps. It's a pretty deep unit. I don't think one injury is going to wreck us. And so from that uh, perspective, you got to feel really good about it. Now, some of these guys are making a, a little bit of a position switch, but I don't think it's going to be so different for them that they can't make it happen. 
So I'm going to give this group an A. I'm really, really high on a ton of these guys. I think we could be really diverse in our looks, both from the 3-4 and the 4-3, and give teams a lot of problems with guys coming from a lot of different angles. So I'm expecting a lot from this group. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think this defensive line, as you said, the offensive line on the other side will dictate how well we do there. The D-line will do the same thing. And I think the schedule is favorable for them this year to really have a phenomenal season, especially with such an aggressive game plan. Uh, so I, I have high expectations for them, and I look for them to, to do well. And I think the talent, the depth, I think is really solid. Very, very good group there. All right, let's flip over to the DBs. We have still, yet again, one of the youngest sets of defensive backs in the country. Last year, we basically were the youngest. I accept we have a tremendous amount of talent here. A really, really well thought of position. Uh, what do you think of about our DBs this season? Yeah, and we're specifically talking about the corners right now. So the headliners there, Henderson and Wilson, you saw them play as true freshmen. They acquitted themselves really well as true freshmen stepping in. I'm really high on these guys. I think they could be, you know, all SEC type guys. I the depth behind them is very scary. I'll say that. We're gonna a true freshman and Trey Dean is the backup on one side. Edwards, maybe there's a, a bunch of different guys who could see time at the other backup spot. If we have those two top line guys go down, we could be in big trouble. But they balance that out to where you feel really good about that group if they're if the starters are in there. So I mean you kind of put those two things together and I'll give us a B plus on that one. Yeah, that feels a lot like our linebacker situation a couple of years ago when we said, okay, our starters are great. They're they're a they're a linebackers, right? And, and then as soon as as soon as one or two of them goes down, we're we're down to like a D. Yeah, you're playing you're playing walk ons who don't belong playing, and, and this is a very similar situation. Although we're not down to playing walk ons, but we are scary thin at the corner position. Uh, I think our top line talent's probably an A, and I think overall the whole group is probably a B minus or even a C plus because. In football, you tend to have injuries, and you ha good teams have a, a way to address that. We have that when it comes to our receivers, our running backs, and our defensive line. We do not have that in the DB line. So I think it's to indicate that difference, I'm going to give them kind of that C plus, B minus that, that illustrates that we are thin there, uh, and we, we are potentially undermanned. Uh, moving over to the linebackers, a spot where I think it's safe to say that we don't have as much top-line talent as an SEC team should have. I know there's people that, that that like certain of our linebackers, the kind of the underachiever story, the overachiever story, and maybe the the non-conventional SEC body. But I think looking at it for me, Alan, and I'm curious what you're going to think about this, uh, the linebacker position is a very interesting one to me. Of course, my guy Voshan Joseph's on there, a guy that we know misses a lot of gaps. I kind of railed at him a lot last year, really wanted him to be more. I think he's got a lot of pop, a lot of next-level hitting power. But in this group, outside of David Reese, who's now got an ankle injury uh, that he's nursing, uh, you know, I'm not sure what to think of these guys. What should we think of these guys? How do you view them? I think they're going to be functional. And I think in this defense, that's probably enough. Um, you know, I, I neglected to mention in the DBs, Chauncey Gardner, who's playing the star position or the nickelback. I think we've got some interesting guys all around these linebackers. And if they can do their job, they don't have to be spectacular. Now, there's... There's a lot of unknown here. You got guys coming back from suspension and, uh, I don't know, some freshmen. You've seen Voshan Joseph play all right at times, spectacular at other times. We've got two different David Reese's. We're going to have to come up with a system for which David Reese we're talking about. Uh, but, yeah, if he's out, if the older David Reese is out, 
that creates a pretty big vacuum. It kind of cascades down from there. So that was one one of the few guys, if you pull him out, you could see serious repercussions. Um, I think this group is actually going to be okay if we can get some level of consistency from these guys. And I think there's enough guys there that that's a possibility. I'm going to give them a B-. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about linebackers in a 3-4 system, which is one of the reasons why you like to run it in college football, is it's less important than it is in a 4-3. In a mm-hmm. 4-3, it's very difficult for those linebackers to be in the right position all the time. They have to cover a ton of space. They can get put in bad matchups, especially against spread offenses. In a 3-4, it's much simpler for them. The goal really of a 3-4 linebacker is to play fast and mind your own responsibility, but there is there is just far less full field covering, plus you get the benefit of disguise. They move you around. They don't know which gap you're hitting. So there's a benefit to that, but like you just mentioned, David Reese, the elder David Reese, uh, is so integral because you just can't trust Voshan Joseph or anyone else on the entire linebacking core at this point in time to lead the defense. You cannot do it. You have no secondary guy. That's a huge loss when he's not in the game. And that's something to monitor. Again, the 3-4 helps that. It eases that transition some. But that's significant. We really need him to be healthy. I'm with you, though. I actually feel, oddly, this is not as talented of a group as the DBs are. But in a way, they probably have less of like a crash-out fail factor yeah. than the DBs do. Um, that's why they're ranked lower in our strength-to-weakness rating. But I think that that's I think functional might be the right word there. Uh, nothing to get tremendously excited about. All right, safeties, Alan. This seems to be a, a ginormous question mark on this yeah. team, and it has been one for quite some time now. Even when we look like we're going to have a good safety situation, they're injured, they're out, they've been bad on film, and now this season we are scary thin at this position. So they moved Chauncey from safety, where he was a starter last year, to that nickel spot, which I think is a great fit for him. But it leaves a hole there. You got the other Jawan Taylor, Jawan Taylor, and you get a ruling on how to say his name, as opposed to the offensive lineman, and a lot of unknowns. Besides him, there's not a guy at the safety position where I can look at and go, I feel confident in his play. They could play really well. I'm not, we don't have the data. We don't have this guy who's like, oh man, he sucks. We're in trouble, but we just don't know. This feels like a D plus C minus, but it's probably just an incomplete. These guys could come out and play really well, but we, we have no idea. We have some talent at this position. Not enough, I think, again, to be Florida in the SEC. And it's amazing I haven't said this yet on this podcast. It's something I think I said every first podcast we do. So here it comes. But <laughs> I don't care what you've read from what site you pay attention to, what message board you look at, or what your friend who went to practice said, or whoever it may be. What Alan just said is the key. We have no data on these guys. They haven't played yet. So again, the preseason magazine, the hype you hear out of practice, none of that stuff matters I could go back and read you hilarious clippings from everything around the country of the past couple of years about this guy or that guy or or my guy, Dre Massey, who was going to be a a hero, a people's champion, an incredible X factor, turns into nothing, right? And that's not a dog these guys. It's just to say that when the lights are on and it's Saturday, things are different. And right now, to look at this group, you, you can't look at anyone and say, that's great. I feel comfortable with that guy. And oh, guess what? Your safety is supposed to be your mistake eraser. Safety. You want safety from your safety. Right. It's hard to it's hard to erase mistakes when you don't know where the mistake is coming from or where it's going to be because you have never played before. And so that's scary. It's thin. It is not good. uh, And that could be something that could really affect this defense because, oh, guess what? We blitz a lot. 
Yeah. And if you blitz a lot, your safeties need to know what the heck is going on. And they're not going to. So that's going to be something to watch all season long. That's why we have them as our weakest group. Alan, if you had to go quarterback to safeties, it sounds like you have safeties as the weakest position group on the team. I think so. Uh, and again, I maybe have slightly more confidence in our quarterbacks than you do. Uh, just that they could go out there and be fairly serviceable. Obviously, they could affect the team in ways that the safeties can't by just completely sucking and ruining our entire season. But overall, I feel like there's more talent in the QB room than there is maybe at the safety room. But that's just my impression. I like to see those guys. I, I don't I don't look at the safeties and go, man, we're screwed. But I have no like confidence in them either. Sure. And especially if you have to get to a second or third guy. You know, if you look at a Steiner, or you look at a Stewart, or you look at uh, Sean Davis, maybe feel okay. There's talent there. People are excited about them. But again, nothing we've seen on film or even very little game experience to indicate that, hey, this is someone we can trust. I probably trust them more than the quarterbacks, but as we know, I'm, I'm very negative on the quarterbacks here at Florida. So that, that's a developing storyline that's uh, been years and years in the making. All right, special teams. Last year, we knew for sure that we had one of the best special teams in the country, hands down, and we did. Preseason, we said it. Postseason, it was true. This season, what do we make of our special teams? Two brand new guys. You had another Townsend in the lineup, yeah. punting the football, which is great. A uh, new place kicker. Still a battle yet to be determined. We saw Dan Mullen say in the presser today that he's going to wait until maybe coming out of the tunnel to make that decision. Uh, what do you think about the special teams this year? I feel okay about the punter, Townsend Jr., is what we should call him on the on the pod. Little Lowell Townsend. I feel like he's a talented enough guy that he's not going to ruin us as a punter. The place kicker is interesting. You've got a senior walk-on and a true freshman. Feels like between one of those two guys, we'll find someone serviceable. Now the kicker, McPherson, was one of he was like the highest recruited kicker. So he's got talent. Can he put it together quick enough? We'll see. He's not going to be a weapon like Eddie potentially could have been. I don't think we used Eddie last year like we should have. We should have been bombing 60-yard kicks every time we had the chance, and we didn't. That's just coaching error. So I don't know if he's going to be a weapon, but hopefully that position won't be a liability. Now, where we need to see a total transformation, and I believe Dan Mullen understands this, is in punt coverage, punt return, kickoff coverage, and kick return. We were so bad in these areas. If we didn't have Johnny Townsend, we would have been just the worst unit in America, I think, at this. And the returns were so bad. Do we ever have more than like a three-yard return? What should be a strength of this team was a total weakness. That needs to be a whole paradigm shift of how we think about special teams. And right now, I don't know. Nobody on this team has been like, yes, they are excellent at special teams. This could be an F. It could be an A, right? So right now I'm going to have to give it a C. Yeah, C feels right because it feels like incomplete. It feels like the real grade here is incomplete. We, again, we have nothing to base this on. However, I will give a relative grade to last year. It will be better than last year. <laughs> what we saw last year and during the entire McElwain era was, was mind-boggling. It was horrifically bad on special teams to the point to where you imagine if the kids coached themselves, they may have been better off. So I have to think it's better than it was last year. But for all the reasons you just said, Alan, we have no clue. And you can kind of see that's what this season looks like, is no one has a single clue what this team could really be like. There's spots you like, there's spots you don't like, there's lots of question marks, there's lack of depth, there is depth. And I think when you go through the personnel like we just did, 
it illustrates that. I will say a little note at the top of the show. I said I was like super Debbie Downer. I wasn't feeling it. I'm getting more excited about the season starting because every time we talk about how horrifically bad it was last year, I'm reminded that, okay, it's not going to be as bad this year. <laughs> Even if we lose games, I'm not going to have to come on the show on a Monday and say, I do not understand why this is happening over and over and over again. That's not going to happen. So there's a little bit of like stress relief coming off my shoulders here. I feel good about that scenario, but I'm with you on the special teams. Incomplete, unknown, and they will be very important in a season like this yes. season we're about to have here. Yeah, if you see us failing at special teams, that's probably a clue that the season is not going to go like we want it to. And that's unfortunate. All right, James, one of my favorite spots of the podcast. I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to ask you for some predictions here. James, you have a chance right now to pick a breakout player on offensive defense. Would you like for the third year in a row to pick Dre Massey as your offensive breakout player, yes or no? What's behind door number three? Uh, no, I'm not going to do it this year. I've decided that's a bad decision. I've done it two years in a row. We, had, we staged an intervention. Yeah, I needed an intervention. I thought last year, you know what? You're back. You're healthy. And I think he may have had like, I don't know what, four catches, maybe six catches the whole season. I mean, yeah. it was a disaster. Again, not all your fault, Dre Massey. If you're listening, I got you. It's not your fault. But this year, I'm not going to go with Dre Massey. And I'll go ahead and fire my offensive breakout player right out of the gate. It is going to be, in my opinion, none other than Van Jefferson. Uh, I've been at practice. The two practices I saw, that guy is a man amongst boys. Legit. He is absolutely phenomenal looking in practice. (laughs) Now, I said in practice. We haven't seen him in the game yet. But he stands out amongst all of the other receivers. I expect if we can get the ball anywhere near his catch radius, he could have a significant season for us at receiver. Do I have confidence that's going to happen? No. But I think in his skill set, his ability, he he should have a great year this year if he even gets any chances at all to catch the football. I agree. He's going to be fantastic, at least potentially. And he's a guy who's proven it at Ole Miss. He has successful seasons there. And so I, he's not a total unknown, like a, a normal new face to the program would be. I, I can't choose someone like Malik Davis because he already kind of broke out last year. I'm going to cheat a little bit and say Kadarius Tony. I think this staff, if they're smart, are going to find ways to get him the ball. He They threw him a ton of passes in the spring game. I think he could be huge in this offense. They could you know, use him out of the backfield, put him in the slot, put him wide, let him rush the ball even maybe. If, if they can do that and if they're successful at getting him the ball, I think he could have some huge numbers. And not just like totals, but like explosive plays, which this offense really needs. All right, what about on defense? I want, I want to give a sleeper pick on offense, okay, too, yeah, before we go through. So the slot position in Dan Mullen's offense, famously played by one Percy Harvin at one point in time, mm-hmm. uh, is always a very important piece of that spread option offense. Very, very important. I think Josh Hammond uh, it could be an excellent contributor to the offense this year. Kind of the guy you forget about. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is he's right there, you know, listed as your starter in the slot. But I think that he he's a very, very cerebral player. Uh, which is which is one you want in that position. He's got a lot of talent. Uh, so look for him to potentially be your sleeper. Maybe a guy you find at the end of the year that's like, this is a go-to guy in certain situations. On defense, my breakout player, I feel like I have to go here uh, because I've trumped him up so much and he had a really horrible spring, but apparently a better fall, which makes me feel good about this pick because he needs to break out. That's my boy, Voshan Joseph. <laughs> yeah. And I say this because Voshan hit the right gaps play with discipline, knock people's heads off. The 3-4 defense is built for this guy. Now, 
A lot of concerns. Like we said, a lot of concerns with his ability to pick up the game and understand what he's doing. But by all accounts, horrible spring, solid fall. Seems like he's primed to have a good breakout season. I think if you're not a listener to this podcast, you look at Voshan Joseph as some guy last year that you probably didn't even really notice. So to me, he seems like a primed breakout candidate. And I'm going to I'm gonna go for him yet again. This could be a really, really poor decision by me, but I'm going to stick by Voshan. Who you got? So there's a lot of... I don't know, names on our defense already. We have a lot of returners. Uh, this is a guy who flashed a lot last year, but only ended up with a few sacks still. And I'm going to say Jachai Polite. He could have a monster year. And I think, I don't know, he could be a double-digit sack guy. You saw some of the hustle and some of the flash. He wasn't a big-time recruit. And that's some of these guys, you know, if you're a staff and you have the chance to get your hands on like an athlete like this and teach him how to play football – you're hopeful that you're you're going to end up with a guy who's kind of a freak. And he has that potential. I don't know if he's going to capitalize on it, but that would be the guy I would point to. Yeah, I think that he he popped on film the most last year. And we talked about that. Every every week on defense, I would say Polite pops on film the most on our mm-hmm. whole defense. And that, that's an excellent, excellent pick. Great breakout player there, Alan. All right, let me ask you, do you see a path for anybody on this team, offense or defense, where by the end of the year, they could be an All-American so best at their position in the entire country. That's that's tough. I mean, I think you just named a potential one in polite because of the way our, our defense runs. You could rack up enough sack totals right. that you get mentioned at that. Outside of that, I'm tempted to even throw out like a guy like like Slayton potentially at, at D tackle. Yeah. Uh, because you get My a scenario where right, you yeah. get a scenario where he's a huge body. That position is 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 sort of made for a guy like that to make the All-American team if you get enough stops. On the offensive side of the ball, I have a really hard time. And we have talented guys, I think, on different teams that could merit consideration. But when you look at what it takes to become an All-American, it takes a, a fully functioning engine. And I can't see a path where we get a running back that gets enough yards, carries, etc. to get into that. And I can't see a path where a receiver does that either. So on offense, I actually can't see a single player that could get there. I think on defense, you look at Paulette, you look at Slayton. I'm not sure if there's anyone else that may be able to slide in there. Potentially, if you get a corner who gets a lot of picks thanks to the pressures, you could have you could have Marco Wilson in there. It was fantastic. I mean, those are the guys that come to my mind. If I had to pick just one, I think I'd go with Slayton. And that, that's crazy because he hasn't even done anything yet. But I've got to take a high-risk, high-reward pick here. And I think at that spot, he could be tremendous. He could be absolutely NFL-caliber nose tackle, D-tackle type positioning. We don't know yet. He could also flame out. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a super long shot. That's my pick there. Who do you have? I mean, Slayton's interesting. It's it's hard. It's going to be hard for him to get any traction with how deep defensive tackle is at the high end with Ed Oliver and the Clemson guys. And it's just it's hard to move from nobody to All American at a spot where it's hard to pick up stats. I would say the guy. So I just mentioned Jai Polite as my breakout. I want to say CC Jefferson. If he really takes to this role, he could also be an All-American, but really one of the corners. I don't even know which one to pick. I was going to say Marco Wilson, just have a feeling about him, that you know Henderson had a lot of picks and you know, pick sixes last year. That Marco Wilson, if he picks off seven passes, he's already somewhat of a known guy that he could be that guy where everyone's like, you know, moves from a freshman starter to a sophomore All-American. We've seen those guys like Vernon Hargraves, Joe Hayden. He has a potential to do that. Not that I'm necessarily predicting it, but at least that would be the path forward for me. Okay, over-unders. Last year, we discussed points per game. 
So I think two years ago we were 24 points per game. Like, how could we be under that? So, of course, we're going over. But we were not. We were at 22 points a game. We're about 100 in most offensive categories. Obviously, the wheels came off. James, over, under, I'm going to push it up just slightly, 25 points a game. Man, (laughs) this category has really scarred me. (laughs) I'm going to say over, if you look at Dan Mullen's first year at Mississippi State, he took him from about 90th to like 33rd or so, uh, right out of the gate. And and I think that he has a roster that leads him to be able to run the ball probably 55 or 60% of the time this year. Uh, We have a favorable schedule. We have opponents we can run the ball on. So I I, I do think we'll eclipse 25 points a game. Uh, I want to ask you a counter question when you answer this one is if we had the same coaching staff as last year, do you think it would have eclipsed 25 points a game? Because I will say right now, no. No. So that goes to show you that we we both think, I think there's a discernible improvement there. But for you, do you take the, the over? I'm going to go over. I think we're going to put up a lot of points against some cupcakes on our schedule, which we haven't done. I mean, we're cruising past like teams like FAU and other teams barely. So I think that this offense, with the proficiency of our running backs – and our wide receivers and maybe the experience of our offensive line will allow us to put up points against teams that we are that we overmatch talent wise. So I, I think that'll push us. Now whether an SEC play that we're averaging over twenty five, that will be the real story. But I think overall we should hit over twenty five. Okay, we've not thrown for more than three thousand yards. So a single quarterback really in the past eight seasons. Mullins quarterbacks have done that four times. Do we have a QB who throws? I don't, 3,000 seems crazy. I'm going to bump it down to 2,500. We haven't had a quarterback throw for more than 2,500 either in a, in a super long time. But no, the answer is no. There's no way. I would. I would. I think we're going to be right around the 2,000 yard mark, which is which is sad. When you break out the averages for passing per game, you're looking at like 175 yards a game under that scenario, uh, which means you'll throw for 300 or so against opponents like we have this week, and you'll throw for 150 or 125 against real opponents, which makes for a pretty boring season. But no, I think we're under 2,500. What about you? I, I did my def- myself a disservice here in picking that number. I'm going to go. So this is one quarterback throwing for 2,500, right? I'm going to give you the whole offense. The whole time. offense? I'm going to give you the whole offense. Okay, I'm going to go over then. Okay, I like it. I'll, I'll, a slide over. But I think we can accomplish that, um, especially if we pick up some stuff and some big chunk yardage. We've got some receivers who can take the top off the defense. So that would be helpful. Okay. Number of QBs who play at least four quarters of total playing time. I'm going to set it at two and a half. I'm taking the over. I'm taking the over. I think all three of these guys are going to play four quarters of football in total by the end of the season. Is that good news for you or bad news for you? (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. I think they have to run the ball. I can't imagine Franks goes... I just can't imagine that guy doesn't get hit and get get injured for some point. Okay. I see that. I do think the game plan is to get Emery into the game like we did with Team Tebow. I, I expect to see him in obvious running situations. I expect to see him in the red zone. So therefore, I think his cumulative time will just add up to that. And I think based upon those two factors, I imagine Trask gets in probably due to injury or just due to incompetent play from Franks, maybe at some other point in time. But the real the real question mark there to me is what do you think about Trask? Because I think I think that Jones is going to get four quarters of time just through these specialist plays he's going to play in. Okay, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I would totally agree with that. So I think we see all three guys in a significant amount. I 
Maybe my hope is that we don't, but we probably will. Okay, number of sacks by an individual player. We didn't hit this number last year, even close. I'm going to set it at eight. Yeah, we were just abysmal last year with this number. This is tricky to me. If you gave me a good set of safeties that were experienced in the back of that defense and you told me David Reese was going to be healthy, I would say over. But in order to get sacks, you have to cover guys for the first one and a half seconds when you're when you're blitzing. I am not super confident that we're going to be able to do that, uh, especially if you look at what could happen with linebacker and safety spots. I feel like eight's maybe the perfect number, and because of that, I'm going to take the under. Yeah, again, I picked this number because it's a hard number. I'm going to go over. I'm maybe internally optimist. I mean, that's a lot of sacks for a college player. But I think someone can do it, either Jefferson or Polite, that maybe they could hit nine. I mean, 10 would be a lot. But I'm probably a sucker for saying that, but I'll take the over. Okay, defensive ranking at the end of the season. Are we going to be in the top 30 in, like, total defensive statistics? And to give you some reference, last year we were basically 61st or so, which is a ginormous step down. Grantham has done the same thing that Mullen has done when he came to Mississippi State. He took a defense that was ranked like 80th and, and made him top 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have more talent than Mississippi State does on defense. Our schedule is very favorable to our defense doing well. And so I think, I think yes, I think we're maybe right at 25 or so, uh, which, which should be right solely based upon our recruiting rankings. We should be in the 15 to 25th area. So I'm going to say, yeah, I think we do. Agreed. I think we move up into the top 30. Unless we just hit a crazy rash of injuries at one particular position, I think we're top 30 feels very reasonable. Grantham's track record plays into that for me as well. All right. Do we have a 1,000-yard rusher? Last year, I said no, and I got a text message immediately after the pod aired from somebody who remained nameless here chastising me for that. And then I think a day later, everyone got suspended. So... Yeah, what do you think? Do we have a thousand yard rusher this year? I'm gonna say no, but that's because we're gonna have too many guys touching the ball. I think that we would. Agreed. I think we would. If you had a Bryce Love situation like you have at Stanford, I would imagine that Jordan Scarlett gets 20 carries a game. Yes, definitely, absolutely, he'd break a thousand yards. But I think this team is built to give each of these guys between five and eight, nine touches a game, and I just do not see a way where someone's going to crack a thousand with regards to that. It's too deep of a, of a running back room. So I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no as well for those very same reasons. I think you could see Scarlett getting pretty close. And that's if he's running really well and the coaches are like, he's leaving anyway, just load him up. All right. How about a 750 yard receiver? Any chance of that? That feels like a million. Yards yeah. yeah me. Doesn't it? Isn't, I mean, this is so every year, oh man, like 750 yards seems like, just literally a million yards. And because of that, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, no, there's, there's like no way we can't possibly get one guy with 750. So I'm going to take the under. Yeah. I'm going to take the under way under on that one for me. Uh, that's not to say again, we don't have talent. We have actually have a decent amount of guys. It's somewhat similar with the running back situation where I'm going to think they're going to spread the ball around a lot. 750 in a college season is actually high. All right. Let me lower it. Do you think a guy breaks 500? That's a great number. That's where I think it's going to be, and I'm going to say yes. I, I can see a path where Cleveland has a couple of big catches in a couple of games, and you're already at 250. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I think someone breaks 500 this year. I'm going to still say under on 500. Ooh, ooh. okay. That's painful. It's really painful. 
All right, well, we know that we don't want to see a receiver that's under 500 as our number one receiver. So what do we need to see out of the team this year? We ask the same question every single year. It's one of my favorite questions. What is the best case, worst case scenario out of this team, in your opinion, this year? And then what is the level we need to see? Best case, worst case, need to see to feel like we've improved. All right, let's let's break those down. I don't want to talk about all three because I don't want to go on too long of a monologue. Let me do best case, and you're going to make fun of me. So I'm going to like take some of your mojo where you picked us to go 11-1 and one last year. I really do think that this could be a 10-win team. If the defense plays at a top 10 level, which I think it's capable of, and we get competent quarterback play, there are nine or ten coin flip games on the schedule. Now, that's not a recipe for success because you could lose all those coin flips. And like we did two years ago, or we got, it wasn't a coin flip. We got freaking smashed. I don't know. I, I might be crazy. There's only one game in the schedule. Where I look at it. as like, we are probably going to lose that. And that's Georgia. Now Mississippi state is another big challenge. There's other games on the schedule that are difficult and we could lose to teams like Kentucky. That's also on the table. But if you're going to ask me for my best case scenario, I see a path to 10 wins. I'm not going to predict that here in a minute, but at least that's on the table for me. What about you? Yeah, I think when you include the bowl game, that is the best case scenario. Okay, not including the bowl. I'm just talking about regular season. Oh, not including the bowl game, I'll go to nine. I'll go to nine. I think for me, I don't see us getting past nine wins, in the, even in the best case scenario. And again, for, for JT Raymond, who I know is going to listen to this podcast and send me the text, is how is the best case scenario not undefeated in winning a national championship? We are not talking about the most unrealistic scenario ever. We're talking about what we think, if we could mathematically model out this season, is in fact the highest end of the variance. I think for me that's nine wins. I mean, I can see how you get to ten, uh, but I think that realistically nine would be like, what a ridiculous year if we have nine wins before we go to the bowl game with this roster. That would be a phenomenal showing out of Dan Mullen. Okay, I'm going to talk about worst case next it's also on the table for this to be a particularly painful year. If we have some hiccups early on, we've got Kentucky and Tennessee. We talked, I think last episode about Tennessee is going to throw the kitchen sink at us. Kentucky. I don't know. We haven't lost to them ever, but maybe we will. We're going to eventually lose to them. There's a lot of games on there that could be stumbling box. I think this could be a, a six win team just a bowl-eligible level team, that would suck. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's still on the table. I lean between like five and six, which makes you want to say five and a half. You could get to five because unlike the top side where you have to, you have to dream up like a perfect situation where everyone plays their best, the worst case scenario, all you have to do is have injuries. And we have those position groups where if we take injuries, we are we are no longer an SEC team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that I'm going to say five wins because of that. Uh, I think six is the number that feels more normal. But again, we've had this happen before. This is not unprecedented. You get in that run of injuries where you have, you have your safeties go down some. You have your thinner position groups go down some. You lose a couple of corners. Uh, all of a sudden, on paper, we are no longer a superior team to a Kentucky. And I like to look at it this way. Tennessee, and this might be a shock for some of you, Tennessee and Florida, if you look at their composite recruiting rankings over the past five years, is more or less equal. It's exactly the same. When we play Tennessee this season, that team is 
identically talented to us, minus a few pieces here and there. It's not statistically significant that we are better than Tennessee. As Gator fans, I think we all just feel that way, but we're really not. That game is like a true coin flippish game in college football. Uh, and I think if you look at Kentucky, we are appreciably more talented than Kentucky, but like you said, not demonstratively so. Not so much that we just win that game. So I think when you look at the the scarcity of some of our position groups uh, with regards to depth, I could see a scenario where we get to five. So I'm going to say best case scenario, nine, worst case scenario, five, and you're one game above me on either end. So you're saying worst case scenario, six, best case scenario, 10. Yes. And okay. five doesn't seem out of the, the Even though that's something like Kentucky, the fact that it's early on and we're not going to hopefully have an injury just catastrophe in week two, that helps mitigate some of those things. And we do have three teams on the schedule this year that should be wins rather than last year, a team like Michigan or, or a really difficult, difficult non-conference opponent other than Florida State. All right, James, back to your original question. What do we need to see out of this team? What would be success for me? I'm going to say I'm going to say eight wins. I think seven would be pretty disappointing. I think eight wins, I would be like, especially against the right opponents, would be satisfactory to me. I don't know. It's maybe not satisfactory to everybody else, but it's going to get us to the next topic in a second. What about you? What would be the the minimum number of wins for you to consider this a success? Yeah, you nailed it. Eight wins. Eight wins would be success. Seven wins to me is like uh, I could go coach a team right now and probably get seven wins in a lot of scenarios. Eight wins is like there's a skill edge there. He added an extra win. And then that to me, again, we're going to talk about the more important part I think next and I'm going to leave that so I don't spoil it but eight wins with other factors we're about to consider I think is the number that I probably say that was successful I'm going to feel better about the following season and I think this season for me is a do I feel better going into the next season that's what I'm looking for out of this season so that's a pretty tight line between your best case scenario nine wins and your minimum level of success eight wins does that feel too tight of a margin when you when I say it like that? No, because I think that's how this team is going to be. If you if you look at our 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 predicted sort of what's the matchup rating look like, right? If you look at like a, if you like a, if you're like me and you like the pro football focus rating of your of your roster, mm-hmm. there's the majority of the games we play are indistinguishable statistically, talent wise. And so when you get in a lot of those games, you say good coaching will overcome that. I do think we actually have one of the better X's and O's coaches out there now, which is why I say we can get to a certain point. I just don't think we have the talent to get to that next point. Winning 10 games in college football is extremely difficult. Yes. Go back last year and look at how many teams won 10 games, including the bowl game. It is far fewer than what you may imagine it to be. And I just don't see this team being a team that's in that kind of caliber. When I look at those teams that did it last year or the year before, I look at our roster and think, this is not a 10-win team. And so for me, eight wins is very achievable given that we have, what, three basically automatic wins, two other ones that you should win. They were at five which is where we are. And then yeah. you need to win three games. You have to win three games where you have similar competition and maybe you're on the road or you've got a different scenario going on. And then you get to lose all the ones you should lose. That feels to me like what a good coach would do. So it is thin, but I think there's good rationale. This season just shapes up that way, I feel like. All right. This is something we talked about last year and we totally failed this test. Just like we failed every other test last year. Style versus record. Now you talk about eight wins being viable. Let me talk about seven wins. But we look spectacular at times, and we are putting up points. And maybe we lose games because we lost all our corners, but we are freaking fiery on offense. Would you actually take that? Yeah, and then that's what I teased up is it wasn't in a vacuum, right? The eight wins. Style is always more important to me. My metric is style every single day of the week. 
when you're early on as a coach. It's, it means everything to how I evaluate a coach. It fits right into my three-year test. The record in year two tends to be much more important, but style in year one is absolutely everything. So what you just said, definitely completely true. If we won seven games, we looked absolutely fantastic. If we got way better throughout the year, if in week 10, I'm doing our film breakdown saying this team is so much better than it was, but during the season, we lost a couple of close games that we fought well in, I will say this team is on the right path. You can win eight games and look like garbage in all those games. And I will say something different. Will West Champ year two. There you go. And so I think that style is everything in this first year record is very, very misleading. We go through it because it's good to get a benchmark of like what you think should happen under ideal circumstances. People stay healthy. Everything works the way it should. But you have to factor in that life is rarely ever that predictable. Therefore, I think the style is a much better predictive measure of what a program looks like or where it's going. Uh, and I think for me, that's the case. I know, Alan, you tend to be a little bit of a blend of that. Yeah, I, I think you've got to prove it on the field. And winning games as a college football coach is what separates you from the guys who are getting fired. And sometimes you have to win games where you don't have your best stuff. You're dealing with unpredictable college players. But again, for me... If we win eight games and we look like crap, I'm not going to be encouraged. I think seven would be hard. That would be a hard pill to swallow. But if we looked awesome doing it, it's hard to look awesome winning seven games. But there, there are scenarios where that could feel encouraging. But I think it needs to. There's a caveat with that eight wins is that it needs to look like we're going somewhere. That we have a plan. That there's improvement. And that's weird. Okay, I know eight wins sounds like not. Or maybe some of you sounds like a lot. Some of you are sitting here. Eight wins at UF is like you get fired for winning eight games at UF. Several guys have been fired for doing so. And so that's not where I'm saying that I, I need this. I'll be happy with eight wins all the time. I think in year one with a lot of the coin flip games, I would be satisfied with that. But it's got to be an impressive eight wins. If we're squeaking things out. And we look pathetic on offense. It's not going to be the same. All right, let's do a show reset at this point in time. We've covered the preview for this upcoming season. We're about to transition here and get into some prep for the Charleston Southern game. Talk some tactics about the team in and of itself. What we expect to see happen on Saturday. Before we do so, I want to talk just briefly with the recruiting situation, you and I. And then we're going to talk with Blake Alderman, our recruiting expert. Are you pressing the panic button based upon what you've seen in recruiting? Right now, we are we are below, I think, pretty significantly what a lot of people thought we'd be at. Are you yourself concerned, or do you feel okay right now? I think I'm more encouraged than I was in the last time we recorded this thing. We added a few more high-profile recruits. I, I'm not a panic-button pusher when it comes to recruiting. I think there's a lot of room left. I'm not someone who looks at this day in and day out. But I'm I'm not panicking. Are you? You were slightly panicking. Are you still panicking? Oh, I was not slightly panicking. <laughs> I was panicking, and I am panicking. Okay. Uh, the lifeblood for me, as I say, what are James' recipes for winning a championship at Florida? You have to recruit in the top five. You have to recruit a certain percentage of top 100 players, which we are not. You have to have a certain percentage of top 300 players, which we are not. And I'm very concerned with the relative recruiting performance of Dan Mullen right now. You cannot win. SEC championships or national championships without that kind of talent. You just cannot do it. It precludes you from doing it. And therefore, I am concerned. It will be a major storyline that I will be watching. We'll be updating you as this season goes on the podcast. And I know, Alan, both of us are hoping that this closes strong 
and then we set ourselves up for a, a really good recruiting class in the following year. But as it stands right now, I'm definitely worried. Blake tends to be a lot more optimistic when we talk about these things. So I'm curious to see what he is going to say. Let's chat with him now. All right, joining us now is Blake Alderman. He joins us each and every year to give us the recruiting update. He is the recruiting analyst for 24-7 Sports. You can find him on Twitter at Blake underscore, uh, underscore Alderman. Blake, thanks for joining us. I want to just jump right into the the narrative here that's, that's, I think, on most of our minds is what the heck is going on with recruiting? We're currently 23rd in the nation, 11th in the SEC. We have one top 100 guy and just five guys in the top 300. Those numbers seem very pedestrian. Uh, what what are your thoughts on this? What are you making of this right now? Should we be panicking? You know, I don't I don't think so. You know, I think Florida. If you kind of look at things, yeah, things may have gotten off to a slower start, but uh, you know, they've actually started to kind of pick up a little bit of momentum. You know, you land a, a top one hundred guy in Dewan Black coming off of Friday Night Lights, um, along with another uh, four star uh, outside linebacker, Muhammad Diabate. You said he was a one forty four guy that's in the composite. 24-7 Sports actually has him ranked much higher, actually, at 56. So this is a guy who will fit into that edge-rushing hybrid type of spot. Ten sacks last year at a local Auburn high school. The Tigers were a little late on an offer. Alabama was in the mix, LSU, but Florida actually, uh, that was their most recent commit landing him. So, you know, some of these guys in Florida's recruiting class, Tyron Hopper, uh, their quarterback, Jalen Jones, you know, a couple of these guys in the class continue to kind of rise up in the rankings. So, you know, the, it kind of shows that, Maybe their evaluation process is, is, you know, is a little bit more maybe hit than this um, with some of these guys that continue to kind of go up the rankings. Uh, you know, like I said, Florida starting to kind of get some momentum cooking on the trail, landing some guys in there. Dewan Black, that that highlighter of the class, is kind of taking that. Uh, you know, he's kind of taking that next step as far as going from recruit to recruiter, and it's kind of been very vocal on social media recruiting guys. So you know, Florida starting to get a little momentum in the recruiting uh, on the trail. Again, you know, I know things have started probably a lot slower than people really wanted but you know it does seem that they're kind of catching their stride so you know I don't think I'd hit the panic button yet and I think that kind of the the plan maybe for the coaches right now is you know Florida's more than likely going to field a better team than last year winning four games you know I think that's kind of expected uh, Mullen obviously being you know kind of an X's and O's guy and, and knowing this league I think he's going to kind of maybe have his team do a little bit of recruiting for himself because you know I think the thing now it most recruits want to see is you know i mean we're going on almost maybe 10 years here of just barely any offense for florida you know these recruits at this point it's kind of becoming more or less a you know a punchline you know where's florida's offense you know and i think when you see some of these kids that have kind of grown up not seeing florida in those glory days of having those offenses and those big scoring teams you know i think that some of these kids really want to see you know is this going to be the step you know here's another coming into florida is he going to fix their offense so i do think there is some wait and see there and I think that that could be something that if Florida does with a season schedule like they have that is kind of favorable, I think that that could be something that could even maybe give a little bit more of a kickstart to this recruiting class. Can you see a path forward for the Gators to get into the top 10 and maybe even to the top five? Uh, no, I don't, honestly. But I think that top 15 range there. Obviously, if your season goes really great, and maybe some eyes that aren't looking now look later, you know, sure. Uh, you know, there's a lot of maybe shades of gray there, but – you know, I think that Florida has a lot of guys that are uh, near the top of their board that they really want that are leaning their way or, you know, maybe playing wait and see with the season or maybe want to take some more visits. So, you know, I think there's a lot of left on the board still for Florida that is very possible to get. But top 10, I could see maybe more likely. Top five, I don't. 
Is there a path moving forward to get into the top five in the next two to three years? Sure. Keep winning. You know, you have to start winning against Florida State, your in-state rival. Obviously, a game against Miami is going to have a lot of eyes for recruits in-state. You know, Florida is a state that you want to win kids in. Um, you know, it, it's all about kind of taking that next step, you know, kind of putting that program back on the map, getting things kind of in the right direction. You know, kids are fickle, man. You know, some of these recruits, man, it, it's about – you know, who's the hot team? You know, you see some of these teams that are start winning. You know, Clemson's obviously recruiting at a more higher level with, you know, a lot of these wins coming in. You know what I mean? Winning does translate to these kids, and they want to be a part of a winning program. And, you know, it, not to say that it's kind of like a popularity contest, but to an extent, it, it kind of is. You know, you have some of these kids that maybe are a little bit more open to a team that is a little bit more attractive than a team that has to sell their, their brain, if that makes sense. So, you know, I think that continuing to kind of get this program – in the right track, obviously getting some more facilities in there with Florida having that standalone, uh, you know, weight room and football complexes and, you know, a little bit more of the bells and whistles and kind of upgrading some things. Um, but, you know, man, it's all about winning. It's all about winning and continue to establish these relationships. Um, you know, I think Florida could maybe do with some guys that are a little bit more of a, a kind of an ace on the trail. You know, I think that there's a lot of really good coaches on this Florida staff. I think that this staff X's and O's mind is probably near the top of football mind but I do think there could be some upgrades in some of the staff maybe to get some guys that are a little bit better at recruiting you know kind of some of those guys that are you know going to come in and, and make that instant impact and kind of be those closer guys so you know I think there's little things like that that sure could happen but you know I think winning is going to be probably the more drastic thing coming off of such a year like they had last year so I want to do a little comparison one before we got on the air we talked about Urban Meyer and his level of recruiting here at Florida and I know that gets thrown around as the benchmark. And you mentioned, of course, that's an unrealistic benchmark because he's one of the best recruiters you know, that there is in all of college football. Um, sure. so, so give me the comparison here. One, compare Mullen to, let's say, the top five elite recruiters. What would we have expected at this stage if Mullen was a top five elite recruiter? And then two, compare him to some guys that we know have also gotten new jobs. So you've got Willie Taggart. You've got Joe Moorhead in Mississippi State. You've got a couple of other guys out there. Give me those two comparisons and then tell me how comfortable you are with kind of how Mullen has acquainted himself at this point. Uh, you know, I think looking at some of these other schools out there that have new coaches in there, you know, the argument could be, well, Florida won four games. Well, you know, Florida State didn't have a good season last year either. Tennessee obviously hasn't had a good season in quite a while. So, you know, I, I do think that that's not an excuse or a crutch that Florida can kind of go on. But I do think that you know, Pruitt has been one of the best recruiters as an assistant. You know, I think that's going to translate us to a head coach. Taggart, again, one of the best recruiters in there. You know, Mullen's not known for a recruiter. You know, he's not going to be one of those guys that's going to come in and, you know, make an instant impact. He's going to be a guy that's going to have those things translate on the field. I think if you see what he's done at Mississippi State, you know, landing some of those, uh, you know, not having the talent like Florida in their backyard compared to like Mississippi State, not having that that you know those talent that talent pool there you know I think that you can see he kind of did some things you know didn't really win some of those games against the top level SEC West teams but he made it close and I think that if you have some of those arsenal guys in the state of Florida you continue to kind of build things there you know Mullen and a lot of those staff members there wasn't really a lot of guys that jumped out that had state of Florida deep ties and I think those are going to be something that we're going to have to see build upon so you know I think as far as some of the new coaches in there I think it's going to be something that as far as recruiting, it's going to probably take a little bit more time than, you know, Willie Taggart or Pruitt, who are probably a little bit more of proven recruiters. But, again, that could translate to, you know, those guys haven't really shown 
again, Pruitt being a first-year head coach, hasn't shown that he's going to be a, you know, an instant game-changer on the field, and neither has Taggart. Um, you know, so I think it's kind of pick your poison what you want there, and I think Mullen is more of those, one of those guys that seems like more of an X's and O's, get it turned around on the field thing, and that recruiting will take care of itself later. Um, you know, and I think compared to some of the top recruiters, you know, I, I think Mullen is a very good recruiter. I think he's very personable. Um, you know, I think he – kids really like him. You know, kids – he's not like a, a salesman or anything like that. But, you know, I think that it's unfair to kind of compare him to some of those top recruiters you know, like Urban Meyer, you know, Kirby Smart, Nick Saban, uh, Jimbo Fisher. You know, those guys are proven year after year. You know, the proof is in the pudding. Those guys are going to have top recruiting classes every year. And, you know, uh, could a, a program like Florida do that for Mullen? Sure. But that's still kind of a thing that we'll have to wait and see on. Do you think that the new recruiting calendar uh, where, you know, guys can commit now in December, change the way some of the visits are going? Do you think that's having an impact on this staff particularly? Uh, You know, yes and no. I think it's something that a lot of staffs are having to deal with. You know, I think in a, this year in particular, it's kind of the, you know, it's kind of the, the, the rough draft year. You know, let's see how this thing goes because. Last year, yeah, kids could sign there in, in December, but, you know, there wasn't a lot of those June and, and July official visits as compared to this year. So, you know, I think that that's been something that a lot of schools have had to kind of test and see what they think about it. And Florida had a couple of guys come in and do their visits in June. But I think the staff kind of prefers to have the, the fall visits. And, you know, those, those are little things that kind of you have to work with as a, as a recruiting staff, what you prefer. And I think this staff seems more uh, – seems it's better to bring a kid in for a visit you know when it's a game time there's a lot of people there in the fall as compared to you know some of those weekends in the summer when it's dead so it's kind of something that I think the people are feeling around with but you know I think as far as uh, staffs yeah it, it you have to more or less prioritize those guys that are signing in December as compared to some of those guys in February and it's it, you have to find a line of you know, kind of keeping those guys warm that are signing in February, but also recruiting them hard and not kind of tapering things off. But, you know, you really have to push really hard for those guys in December and get those visits set up because you don't have as much time. You know in the back of your mind that, well, you know, we need to do our part with this guy, but we have till February still. So you have to find a fine line of things of how hard you recruit guys. And I'm sure it's something that coaches are dealing with. So, you know, I think there's little things, yeah, that are kind of affecting, you know, their grand scheme of recruiting. But, you know, I don't see it something that's going to affect Mullen and those guys or, you know, anything like that from being like a first year staff and, you know, having to basically rush to set their 18 class up and then kind of throw together 19. So, you know, I don't think it's something that's going to affect them, but I think it's something that they're kind of balancing out to see just like every other, you know, coaching staff around the country is. Based upon what you've seen thus far, give Mullen and his staff a grade for their job on recruiting. Uh, you know, thus far, counting this class and last class, I'm still giving them like a, a B minus, maybe. I think that last class was really impressive with how, you know, Mullen got those some of those guys to stick and added, you know, Emory Jones, Trey Dean, you know, some of those four star guys in the uh, in their fold. You know, I thought their December haul was really impressive. February, they you know they had some spots, and they missed some guys, but you know, it, it, December was really the the big nucleus of that class, and I thought that was impressive how they kind of did a lot in a little bit of time. Um, you know, I think, again, things have started off slow here, but I really like some of the pieces that they have in there. Obviously, Mullen um, landed a quarterback last year, and uh, Emory Jones has a quarterback this year, and Jalen Jones, and even has a quarterback for his 2020 class, Anthony Richardson. So that's a position that he's really focused on. It's kind of turning over that quarterback room. Uh, linebacker hall this year. Florida has probably one of the best, if not the best, linebacker class in 2019. And Dewan Black, Muhammad Diabate, 
uh, Tyron Hopper and uh, 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 Josiah Pierre, I'm sorry. Um, you know, getting those four guys in there, that's, again, a position that needs a lot of turnover for Florida. So, you know, I think he's addressing position. I think the offensive line, this class, uh, this excuse me, this cycle is something they need to continue to add depth guys on. Uh, defensive back, obviously, is another one where, you know, it's kind of a top-heavy position for Florida right now, you know, with those two sophomores and Marco and C.J. Henderson. Obviously, there's a couple guys that they've added to Trey Dean and, you know, Brian, uh, Brian Edwards and a couple of the other guys. But really kind of rebuilding the roster. Um, is something they need to continue to do at the cornerback position. But, you know, overall, you know, I think a B. I think there's a lot of pieces that are to like in this class, but and there's a lot of targets still left to fill. So, you know, I think that uh, I think that things are, again, started off to a slow start, but it kind of does seem that they're catching a little bit of their stride on the recruiting trail. Well, Blake, thanks for getting us caught up on what went on over the summer with Gators and the recruiting trail. Thanks again for always joining us. We definitely appreciate the insight. Yeah, anytime. James, let's thank some patrons. What up, Carly McMullen, David Parsons, Adam Reidenauer, Scott Poyer, Barry Averett, Joel Whitehead, my boy Ryan Belmore, Jay McCorder, Stephen Pate, Josh Haas, Haasettler, what up? Logan Wild, Mark Chemansky, I think I said that right, Jamie Wagner, James Docker, and Richie Legler. As we said at the top of the show, thanks so much to all of our patrons. Really appreciate it. If you're liking the content, head on to Patreon. You can also find us on our Facebook page, on Twitter, anywhere we are located. You can find information on how to find where we are. Uh, You can always feel free to communicate with us as well. We love getting emails from you, messages on Patreon. Uh, We just appreciate the constant stream of uh, connection between both of us. And then Logan Wild, shout out to my boy. Played a lot of flag football with Logan. Excellent point guard, Gainesville product. Uh, love that you're still listening to the show, Logan. And with that, Alan, I believe it's time for us to turn our attention, finally, to Game 1 of the 2018 football season. None other than the FCS powerhouse, Charleston Southern. Why don't we take a look at the betting numbers? And Alan, I know you're a big fan of what Vegas has about this game. Yeah, let's do it. Florida, we're only a 39.5 point favorite the over-under is 43.5. James, is that a big number? What do you think? It's a big number given what you mentioned earlier in this pod is how we've struggled to play well against inferior opponents. A couple of interesting storylines here on Charleston Southern. Dan Mullen opened the season with them last year. Mississippi State beat them 49-0. And Mississippi State, this is not a joke, Alan, they allowed less than 40 yards is that of good? offense. Yeah, is that good? it seems to be pretty good. 40 yards of offense. They had 15 yards passing and 18 yards rushing. Excellent. Now, Charleston Southern is a good FCS team. Uh, They come from a stock of a team that had won, in fact, back-to-back conference titles. They were in the FCS National Playoffs a little two years ago. They're coached by Mark Tucker in year two. He was their former quarterback coach. He's been with the program for a while. They went 6-5 and last year. They were shut out badly in both of their games against Division I competition. Uh, So essentially, this is as soft as an opening team as you could get. But they are competent. It just shows the difference between an FCS team and, of course, a Division One team. Uh, so that is why the spread is that large. Vegas, I think, is not a believer in us either. But they recognize what they're what they're going against here, and they have data from last year's team uh, and Dan Mullen's team to say, okay, well, Dan Mullen by forty nine last year. It seems like forty might be the safe metric. So let's look at a brief overview, Alan, of the squad. Uh, Charleston Southern eight returning offensive starters, six defensive starters returning. I remember doing Michigan last year when these numbers were totally different, right? Mm-hmm. They had basically no returning starters. 
So this is a veteran team. They run a spread option offense. In fact, more of a traditional option offense. And I know you have not seen them on film, Alan, but it's going to feel a little bit high schoolish at times. They will pitch the ball frequently uh, after faking like a jet sweep or or even his own read to a, to a guy running in motion or to even a running back behind him. So it's going to function more like that. It's an east-west passing game. Uh, and on defense, they run a pretty traditional 4-3. So this is not a team that matches up well with power teams. Their offense is subpar. Their defense is, however, really good. And before we unpack the matchups, Alan, a little bit more about them. Their strengths, good offensive line, really good secondary, good special teams with regards to plays, kicking, and punting. They have an excellent receiver, but their best player on their team is Solomon Brown, first-team defensive lineman. Dan Mullen actually mentioned him uh, by name in the press conference today as a guy that could play in the SEC. So that talented at Charleston Southern. So they do have a couple of really good players. Uh, Their weaknesses actually are their defensive line. They turned over all their talent from last year. They don't have a lot of depth at a lot of other positions. And also at running back, a lot of question marks there. So in a weird way, they're kind of like a mirror of our team. They're trying to find their way back to where they are just in a different conference. The quarterback there, redshirt junior London Johnson. He's mainly an athlete as opposed to a thrower. Quick guy, runs a lot, uh, wears number one. There are no quarterbacks with any experience behind him. Sounds familiar also to our team. Uh, If you look at the film analysis style and matchup, of course, all of them are extremely favorable for us. There's not a single thing they should be able to do to us uh, to mess with us. So with that, let's talk about the stuff that matters to the listeners and to, to obviously Alan and I. What are the expectations on the skater team coming into a weekend where we know we are up against an overmatched opponent? And let's start on the defensive side of the ball. I think I expect us to play maybe not to the level where we allow them 40 yards, but we should be incredibly disruptive to what they're trying to do. They want to run the ball 75% of the time. I don't think that they're going to – like press our safeties into bad situations for the most part. Now it could happen. Maybe we get beat over the top because someone's in the wrong place and they're, they have a couple tricky plays for us, but I don't expect us to have real problems with them. I think the defense should be fairly stellar in this matchup. I mean, a shutout is not out of the realm of possibility. Actually, it's probably what we should be hoping for. What about you? Shutout is, is what should be expected in this situation. Uh, Charleston Southern struggles even against teams in their own conference to score. Uh, I don't think that's always going to be that way for them, but the offense they run is, is a conservative, consistent offense where they try to win with their defense. It should not present a single problem for us. If anything, you could say it's the ideal, ideal opponent for us to debut our 3-4 defense. Uh, you know, the 3-4 versus the 4-3, we've talked about it before, but just as a little teaser or a fresher, especially if you're new to the show, these are the kind of topics we like to break down and talk about. Three, four, you have three down linemen as opposed to four, and you have four linebackers. So typically you're substituting size for speed. You're faster, you're more versatile, and you have the benefit of being much harder to read uh, from the other side of the ball. So the quarterback and the offensive line have a harder time figuring out who they're blocking or who's going where. It's more confusing, uh, and it tends to be good at the college level because it's it's difficult for these younger quarterbacks especially nowadays to get a handle on it we have struggled with the 3-4 tremendously the past several years and when you play a 3-4 you would love to go up against a team that runs the option that's almost the home run dream for you is to use your speed to shut down the option and so this is really really a great matchup for Grantham I expect him to be able to pressure their offense uh, at will whenever he wants and like you mentioned our safeties are probably not going to get a lot of experience out of this game 
Although Charleston Southern, when they do pass the ball, they tend to they tend to try to hit home run. So it will be a chance for us to see if they're in position. All right. So on defense, I think both of us expect a dominant performance. I want to I want to get a little number out here for you. We know Mississippi State held them to like 33 total yards last year. 60 yards, Allen, over under. Man, I'm gonna go over. I think that they maybe will pick up some garbage time stuff because I think our younger defenders in the game might especially at spots like corner and safety, if they're throwing the ball, maybe they're going to have a little bit more success if they're just totally winging it. So it wouldn't be a big over, definitely less than 100 yards. Yeah, I'm going to go over as well. I think that this team had the benefit of playing Dan Mullen's team last year. Charleston Southern is better this year than they were last year. So I expect them to be a little more creative, try a few things that they did not try last year, if for nothing else than to make their own improvement on that yardage number. So expect to see that. Also, it's the debut of our offense. Now, if you've been a Gator fan since the mid-2000s, you have seen what Dan Mullen's offense has done. It's not going to be any different than what he did here with Urban Meyer. You expect a 55% run, 45% pass play breakdown. Uh, Alan, what are you looking for this Saturday out of the offense? One, that they're competent in running what Dan Mullen wants to run. Do we see a lot of penalties a lot of missed assignments along the offensive line players running wrong routes I don't want to see any of that okay I want to see a clean game they're not having to do anything tricky against Charleston Southern so it should be the base of what we're trying to do are we functional at it uh and I think between our running backs and wide receivers we're gonna be so much more talented than their defense that we should be able to put up some points and so I don't, again, you're going to see a total number that's probably pretty high. I don't know if the flash is going to come with it, but it should be a, a stomping. I I think this team needs to go over, definitely over 40 points, and I would like to see 50 points. Yeah, that would be that would be a nice, a nice return. I kind of have two thoughts here. One, this is good. Charleston Southern has eight returning defensive starters. All of them face this exact offense in week one. Uh, they are competent football players. They will be better this year than they were last year. They know what is trying to be done to them. They have film of their own game against Mississippi State to look at. Again, Dan Mullen himself alluded to it in the press conference. Nothing will be different for them as far as they're prepping for us. It's exactly the same. It's playing Mississippi State all over again. It's just different actual players on the Florida side. So I would expect some some improvement defensively from them because they do have a, a rather talented defense, especially for the level they play at. And I would expect we're not as good as Mississippi State. So I think that 39.5 number comes into play with Vegas. But for me, what you said was what hit home. I want to see a competent-looking offense. And I want to come into the studio next Monday, and I want to say we ran plays that made sense given the defense Charleston Southern let us give a look at, right? Like how many times last year did we come in and say we just ran 10 plays in a row that made no sense based upon what the defense was doing? So step one for me is, are we running plays that have a high degree of success against a certain defensive front? That's number one. Number two, I want to see Franks, he's going to be our quarterback, make a single read at any given time in the entire game. One competent read, and I'd love to see him put a whole drive of competent reads together where he doesn't look in the wrong place, make the complete wrong read, make the complete wrong pre-snap read. That would show some improvement, show some improvement. And like you mentioned, I'd like to see a clean game. There's no reason for a lot of penalties in this kind of game. You have an overmatched opponent. Uh, I'd love to hit some home runs, but I think this is the kind of game, Alan, where we talked about it as soon as Dan Mullen got hired. These are the games that Dan Mullen and spread option offenses tend to dominate in. 
It's what they're built for. This is why they look really good. It's why they run up the score against the inferior opponents. I expect that to happen here. It will not mean to me that we are on a track for tremendous success. That's just to be expected in this kind of game. But I do expect us to look improved over last year. But again, those are the two things I'll be looking for. And with that piece, the depth chart came out today. And I know there were some surprises. Walk us through what surprised you about the depth chart. Well, you'll see this uh, designation on a lot of these positions, the or. And so TJ McCoy, this is not a pro- this is not a surprise for people, I guess, who've been tracking practice reports, I guess. But he's in an or position with Nick Buchanan. Now, TJ McCoy, nice surprise two years ago. Had a relatively disappointing year last year, and they're giving him some competition. So it seems like he might have been beaten out for that spot. Uh, that's on offense. No real surprises other than that. Um, Brett Heggie's still not in the starting lineup. That's mostly because of injury. On the defensive side, a few interesting things. Jachai uh, Polite over CC Jefferson right now. I don't know. That's That feels like Jachai Polite may have made a real move in camp. And this guy, to put CC Jefferson on the bench who you, the former five-star recruit, a guy who you lobbied to come back, that means to me he's probably killing it. So hopefully that's what that means. Rather than CC hasn't figured out the position yet, Conliff and Slayton, the Bam Bam Twins, starting at the nose and the other tackle. No Kiari Clark, which you know he's the veteran. You expected him probably to be in that spot. So that's probably good news for the defense. And then Donovan Steiner over Brad Stewart. You know Someone had mentioned Donovan Steiner, and I think it was – Grantham in the press conference is making a move. So he shows up at the top of the depth chart at one of the safety spots. So we'll have to see how he does with the spotlight on a little bit. I think what stands out to me in the depth chart is, is polite over CC Jefferson the most. And two reasons. One, it was asked directly at the presser on Monday about that. Dan Mullen responded with a coach answer. And then I think what the real answer was at the end was the effort level that polite brings to practice every day. Helped him earn that spot. And again, we saw this on film all last year. There was multiple plays where he was on the opposite side of the field, ran in the backfield, and then would chase down a running back on the other sideline 15 yards down the field. You just do not see that kind of stuff. And I think with CeCe, his ceiling is, is still very, very high. But the motor Polite plays with, that's a, that's, a, that's a team message. That's Dan Mullen saying, this is the kind of guy that you have to become to play in this system. And so let's assume that Polite and CeCe are a coin flip in terms of production. You're going to go with the guy that's giving you that kind of effort, that kind of leadership on the field. It seems to me like that's the move Dan Mullen is making, which hopefully is also going to push a guy like CeCe to say, I have to give more. Uh, but all in all, I find that to be a very good development when something like that goes on. And the coach mentions in the presser, it seems like a very positive team-oriented step for me. I liked seeing that on the depth chart. And they're both going to play. Uh, I think the the idea is to play a ton of defensive linemen, rotate, keep everybody fresh. So it's not like, okay, C.C. Jefferson's not going to see the field because he's the backup. He's going to play a ton. He may end up even getting more snaps, you know, depending on the situation. So, I, again, I, hopefully that's not that he's struggling. It's more that Polite is really stellar in practice and he wants to reward that. Let's talk about QB play a little bit. Franks is our starter. No surprise. How are you feeling about about his performance on this game. What do you want to see from him specifically? And what would let you know that he's made some improvements from last year? Yeah, I sort of teased this with my answer to the offense, but 
when I'm watching Franks, I'm going to watch the mechanics. So his footwork in the pocket, how he moves, where his eyes are. But most importantly, to, to study Felipe Franks is to come to the conclusion that he does not know how to make a pre-snap read or a post-snap read. It's not even like he can make either one of them. And so he'll look at the field and he'll say, okay, the team is in a, is in a too high look and I need, to, I need to make sure this receiver is my first look. And he'll catch the ball and he'll look immediately to the wrong area. And that's sort of what his consistent MO is. Dan Mullen, being a very good quarterback coach, has alluded to this time and time again when he talks about Felipe. He's talked about his ability to make reads. I assume, since he's the guy that's the starter, he's better at it than Trask, or at least at some level. I also think they like Franks's running ability over Trask's. I still think Trask is probably the more accurate thrower. Uh, but at this point in time, that's where we are. So for me to say that Franks has given me anything promising to build on in this kind of game would be a consistency of the right read. That's step one, because I've yet to see that. That would show me he has actually learned something. I don't care about him dropping back and hitting a 65-yard go route. That is absolutely meaningless to me. I want to see those throws over the middle. I want to see the slants. I want to see the outs. I want to see the hitches. I want to see him going to the right guy at the right time. If I see that, that's going to be progress for me. That'll be something I have not seen before. And so I think that's going to be the major thing I'm watching him for. I don't know what to expect. Uh, the humanity in me says he's still going to be bad because it's very, very rare to watch a guy who can't make reads start making reads. But Dan Mullen is an excellent quarterback coach. That cannot be overlooked enough. I do think as much as I ride Felipe Franks, by all accounts, he seems like a very nice guy, very likable guy. I actually see him on campus quite a bit. Always just seems to be a dude that's a nice guy. So I'm certainly rooting for him to get better. I don't want to come on here Monday after Monday and have to make these comments, but you know my job on this podcast is to look for those things, Alan. So I will be watching that intently as we sit in the swamp on Saturday night. Uh, what will you be looking for? What will, what will you want to see out of, out of Franks? Yes, a continuation of that. Now, so there's going to be plays where he has an obvious, they're telling him what to do. This is a bubble screen. This is like a one-read play. Where it's obvious, like he does not, he's not making a choice. Now, there's going to be plays where he has to make a choice. And those are when he drops back and has to read the field or on some of these zone read plays. Now, some zone reads are this is a handoff. He's not making a choice. But if he has to read an unblocked end, so basically in the option, you're going to look at a player, maybe usually a defensive end, but it can be anybody. What does he do? Does he choose to run at the running back? And so I shouldn't hand it off. I should keep it. Or is he doing something else and I should give it to the running back? I don't know how much flexibility Franks is going to have. We'll never know. But does it seem like he's making the right choice? Does he give it to the running back and the guy eats the running back alive? Or does he keep it? And that was obviously the wrong move. Some of that will be a little bit more nuanced. But that's what I'd like to see from him. Does he have accuracy on the short throws? He's got a huge arm, like he said. I, I think Dan Mullen does value, he said, his mobility in his arm. So they're going to utilize it some. Um, but is he making the correct read most of the time? And that that would be a win for the team, I think. You're right, because I think they'll follow him. He has the athleticism in the arm to make the plays. That's never been in doubt. Is his head on straight? Is he, Can he do the things that the offense requires him to do? Let me ask you, do you think that we'll see Trask? You've already said you'd probably see Emory Jones, especially with the revised redshirt rule, that he'll get some snaps and situational plays do you think we'll see trask there's a few rumors that trask has a hurt finger and i have no way to know if that's true or not but that seems to be a prevailing thought if that's the case i would not expect to see trask 
I also don't I don't know if there's wisdom in playing Trask because if you think about the fact that that Mullen has said that he wants his guy to be the guy, if you put Trask in that game, even if we're up twenty eight nothing already, all you do is give people a chance to compare the two of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure Mullen wants to play that game right now. I think Emery can be inserted in because you say, hey, look, Emery's the freshman. He's going to be a running guy. He needs to be in the field. My gut tells me that if Trask gets in the game. It might be a series, maybe two at the most, but I feel like it would be something that would tend not to lead itself to you and I discussing on Monday which one looked better. But I also don't think he would hesitate at all to pull Franks out if Franks is not doing what Dan Mullen said he values the most, which is running the offense and putting us in the right look. And I think the one beautiful thing about listening to Dan Mullen's press conferences versus the incoherent babble we heard last year is that he actually says things that good coaches say. And he said, you know your team is starting to figure it out when I'm about to call the next play and the players and especially the quarterback already know what's coming because they know what the look is and they know what they're attacking. And you can talk to countless players from the national championship teams that the Gators had under Urban and they would all tell you the same thing. The players could have called a lot of those plays because they knew what we wanted to do in the certain situations. Mullen contrasted that with teams that don't know where they're going, what they're doing, what they get to play and it's a blank face stare to the sideline. And that's been Frank's whole life is blank face stare to the sideline. So I think that all of those things will be on display. And I do believe if Franks is blank face staring the sideline, he's not going to hesitate to put Trask in there. I, I, don't, I don't think he wants to play like the, the you know, pull the guy out game. But I think he's alluded to enough that he's not necessarily convicted who's out there. But therefore, if Franks does about what he expects, I do not expect to see Trask in this game. That's a great question, though. I hadn't even thought about it until you asked me. What, what do you think on that? More of a political question than it really is anything else. Right. I think you could be very correct in that he doesn't want to invite unnecessary comparison. But at the same time, I think he would be smart to give Trask a look. And Trask hasn't played in a game, so you don't really know what you're going to get with him. And like you said earlier, the odds of Felipe Franks making through the season unscathed are not that high. He's a lanky guy, seemingly prone to injury potentially now he's not like had any big injuries in his career but could be dinged up um i would like to see trask especially either because felipe is effective or he's ineffective i would still like to see kyle trask play there's been a huge question mark for years now i'd love to see him get some run i don't think felipe has such a stranglehold on the job that you don't want to see the other guy play that's excellent, and you're raising such a good topic. I feel like whenever we do these first episodes, we have so much to cover. We can't get as as, as detailed as we want, but that question is thrown in my head, okay, what would I do if I was the coach? Because we love to talk about that. And I would play both of them. I would not have named Franks a starter. I would, I would not have seen enough from him. I do not believe practice predicts what you do in a real game. And we've talked about this before on the podcast too, and I know that's controversial. I just do not think that it does. I think how you practice is important. But I think the game is fundamentally different than practice. It's not the same thing. And I would want to see exactly what you just said. What does Trask do in the game? What does Franks do in the game? And let me see what's happening. Uh, and there was no more famous example of this than Will Gray versus Treon Harris, game one way back in the day when we got on the podcast the next week and we talked all about it. I would love to see that. As a coach, I would want to see that. I'm not sure Mullen's leaning in that direction. Uh, we're going to find out. But good, good topic there, Alan. All right, a couple injuries to update you on. 
And suspensions, potentially, which Dan Mullen questionably maybe said, we'll tell you he on said, Saturday. We'll tell you on Saturday if there's suspensions, so, which leads me to believe there will be. I think there will be, and he's going to handle it differently, it sounds like, than previous coaches to give you the whole week. He's going to do the kind of quiet right before the game these guys are out. So there will be some, but we know injury-wise there are three. Sean Davis, the safety, is questionable. I think they're probably going to lean towards not playing him in this game, if I had to guess. Jacob Copeland, doubtful. And then C.J. McWilliams is also more question and david reese is also on the injury report and david reese on the injury report not mentioned by by mullen and the presser i think that was so i don't know what that means uh he is from the camp where he likes to talk as little as possible injuries coaches don't like to talk about this in general he seems especially loathe to discuss them fully so this is probably a very sparse injury report i'm sure there's more guys dinged up jacob copeland that's a bummer i don't there's rumors that his injury is pretty serious and he is one of our more potentially dynamic and talented freshmen. Love to see him out there. A shame that we won't. James, let's move on to a game prediction. What do you got? Are we covering the spread? I think we are going to cover the spread. And I think that the over-under and the spread are so interesting in this game. So the spread's 39.5. The over-under is 43, which basically yeah. tells you they think their score is going to be you know 43 or so. I feel like we're going to cover this, but it's going to be right there, right there. Uh, and so I'm, I'm prone, I'm prone to saying that I, I take the over if we cover the spread. Maybe they score. You want the over in there? I think so because I don't think we're going to win forty to nothing. Seems too, seems like a close margin, right? I mean, what are the if you're going to say we're going over thirty nine and a half? Why not say you're going with 44? Why not take both? Because what are the odds you win by 40 or 43 versus just one more touchdown? I don't know. It seems like a really tricky little bet to me. I don't like it. I would not bet this game, by the way. No. They're not games I would bet on. But since we're doing it, I'm going to say that we cover the spread. And I'm going to say I'm I'm going to also take the over. Because I, I find more narratives where if they score and then we score again, we eclipse that number. But I don't know. So I think we cover it. And I want to say a little, we always do one of these little things. And I want to do passing yards. Because okay. this has been so woeful in the past. Do we throw for more than 215 passing yards in this game? 215, yes. 215. Yes. Okay, you say yes. I'm also going to say yes. That has not happened. We have played this game a lot, and very rarely have we eclipsed the number that we have set. So Mississippi State threw for 273 or so when they played last year. So, you know, we'll say 215. We'll drop it down some. 215. Okay, so I got over 215, cover the spread, and the over. Okay, I'm going to say my prediction is 45 to 7. So that means I'm taking the over, but I'm not. We're not covering. We're, we're we're hitting 38, which is crazy. When I just did the math, I was like, Vegas, you, you rats. Uh, that's why it's hard. I guess they set the number. I didn't even realize it that they set it so close in my head. So I would like us to be up in the 50s. I don't know that we're going to make it. So 45 to seven seems about right to me. Something in that range, and. I would stay away from both of these bets, honestly, if you're the gambling type. Uh, <laughs> feels a little too close. I don't see a lot of value in either number. Yeah, and I can find a lot of narratives, Alan, where this game is like 28 to 3. Like a lot of them. Yeah. So that's the other scary part. All right, James. Time for some more predictions. We're going to walk through the schedule and say whether we think at this moment it's going to be a win or a loss. Now, this is obviously a snapshot of how we're feeling and again, you could just do the straight percentages of every game and, and you'll come out weird. Or you could do like a win share kind of idea. We're just going to predict 
how we're feeling at this moment, whether it's going to be a win or a loss. We both picked Charleston Southern to be a win for us. Let's start out with Kentucky. What do you got, win or loss? I just want to preface this game by apologizing to everyone <laughs> for my performance last year when I lost my mind and picked us to win every single coin every flip. Every coin game. flip. But it goes to show, for those of you who think I'm a pessimist, it shows you that I am not. I tried to use the data, and I was wrong. All right, this year, here we go. Kentucky. A couple of words on Kentucky. They're better than you think they are. This game could be very close. But this is a game where superior coaching wins. So I'm going to take us in this one as a win. I agree. It's at home. If it's on the road, I'd be a lot more worried about it. We've escaped them a couple times. I think we do so again. Colorado State, another home game. Win. That's a win. Colorado State's not where they were the couple of years Matt Coyne was there. That's That should be a win for us. Win for me, too. Maybe our first real test on the road at Tennessee. What do you got? This game intrigues me for so many reasons. One, I happen to think that Pruitt might be a pretty good hire. And we talked about this when he got hired. And I think I evaluated him higher than other people did. He's recruited pretty well already. If you go read Tennessee message boards, they're they're actually pretty excited about him. That's no gauge of how good a coach is. But I'm just trying to illustrate, for those of you that think Tennessee is sort of like just docile and dead, they, they feel a little resurgent right now. There's a little bit of pep in that program step. If they can dodge a few bullets early on, they get a huge opener against West Virginia. They could have a ton of momentum coming into this game. With all that being said, they have more questions than we have. That leads me to believe that, again, Dan Mullen can get this done. The X factor here for me, Alan, is that Pruitt knows exactly how to stop Dan Mullen's offense. If he has the players to do it, I don't know yet. But he knows exactly how to stop it. A little bit concerned about that. I'm still going to take us on the road here. This game scares me, though. Uh, it scares me. If I could circle one game on the whole schedule that I feel like we need to win to have a successful season, this is it. And they feel the exact same way as we talked about last time. A lot riding on this. I feel like we'll have a lot more data heading into this game. It'll be much more interesting of a pick. Tennessee could be a dumpster fire. So could we. Um, or they could both look pretty good. All right. Next, we travel to Mississippi State. Very, very interesting game. So, yeah, this part of our schedule is fantastic. I mean, this three-game stretch we're talking about here is so much fun. I love Joe Moorhead. He was my guy. Yeah. I'm all about him. I think Mississippi State has their best team they've potentially ever had, top to bottom. I don't think we're ready to beat their team yet. Uh, Joe Moorhead, though, is an unknown. He's an unknown. We don't know what's going to happen. A lot of hype right now. That team may not be nearly as good. Being a head coach of the SEC is hard. So, again of the week the game is played, maybe we feel differently. But right now, I'm going to put this to Mississippi State. I think that they have a, a, a better team. It's more composed, and I think Joe Moore had a lot of success calling plays at Penn State. I would expect him to have the same in the SEC. This roster seems like it's tailor-made for him. It could be a, a big year for Mississippi State. And again, I, I'm not sold on them being like second in the SEC. I feel like that's a huge leap for a first-year coach. But Gus Malzahn did it at Auburn, so... I don't know. I'm going to have to go loss. The Gators have a bad history of going on the road in the SEC West. Just recently, recently, Arkansas, even the Spurrier years, we lost these kind of games. That's a tough one on the road in the other division. How about LSU? Hmm. Ed Orgeron is there, which makes me always want to say that it should be a win for us because he doesn't know what he's doing. But that defense is excellent. It will be again. I think they have more talent than we do top to bottom. I'm gonna take I'm gonna take a home loss here to LSU. I think we could lose two in a row, uh, and that's not particularly because I think LSU is well organized and well coached. I think that they could vice grip us 
on on defense and create just a, a sloggy, ugly kind of LSU game. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take a home loss here. So the two places on the schedule that I really went back and forth, it's this game in South Carolina. I feel like we're gonna lose one of these and win one of these. And at the moment, I feel like we're gonna lose to LSU, but be South Carolina. Maybe when we get into the season, I'm gonna I'll flip those. So I'm gonna say loss, which it sucked to lose our biggest home game. All right, Vanderbilt away. I'm going to take a win on this one. I think Vanderbilt could be feisty, but I, I don't, talent-wise, significant difference. This is a game Mullen wins. Agreed. Vanderbilt doesn't seem like they're peaking this year. They do have Kyle Sherman at quarterback. This is a game we certainly could lose, at least from this vantage point, but I'm not expecting us to. All right, UGA, how much do you want to talk about this? We once said that Kirby Smart was on an unlit bonfire. And that was true. He was on an unlit bonfire. And now he is the king of lighting bonfires under other people's programs. That's what he's doing right now. And uh, I expect him to absolutely and utterly destroy us in that game. It'll be ugly. I don't even want to watch it. I didn't watch it last year. I stayed at the beach. I may not go again this year. I don't know. We have a lot of time. We're going to see. But if you ask me right now, that's going to be a bloodbath dismantling. I don't want, I'm sick about even thinking. Yeah. I am hoping at this point that we keep it competitive. We'll see though. It'll be interesting. Right now, we have the same record. Let's see. We might diverge here. Missouri. I have a loss. I think okay. I think we have a really painful stretch. I mean, right now I've got us loss, loss, win, loss, loss. Losing four out of five. I think Missouri, I don't believe in Missouri, but I'm, I'm looking at the matchup in my little crystal ball, and I'm saying our safeties by then could be who knows. Drew Locke throws the best deep ball there is. Missouri's passing game is entirely vertical. Just like last year, I think they could get ugly for us, uh, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna take a loss here and, and put us four to five. That's gonna be a tough tough spot for the program if we're there. I think Missouri's success was smoke and mirrors, and they were being teams that had fired their coaches and were dumpster fires. And I don't know that they're gonna be able to replicate that. The fact that this is home feels like a win. If it's on the road, I probably would pick would be more likely to pick a loss. So I'm gonna go win. Okay, big one, USC. I'm taking, I'm taking a win in this one. You might wonder, wow, how can I pick us to lose to Missouri and beat South Carolina? I'm doing it based upon the matchups yet again. I think the matchups are better for us against South Carolina, and I think South Carolina is a better team than Missouri. I'm going to say both those things in the same the same construct there. But I, I, like, I like a win. I think we get a win. I think that this partly attests to what we've been talking about this particular season. The team gets better, even despite these losses. Uh, the team is improving. The team is not abandoning the philosophy. And that would show itself with a win against South Carolina. I'm going to pick a win here, too. This is a home game. This is really, do you think we're a better team than South Carolina? Is a big question throughout the whole year. Who did you pick to finish second in the SEC East? I think we're more talented. I think at this point in the season, hopefully our arrow is pointing up. So I'm going to pick a win. Idaho, the week before FSU, I assume you're picking a win here. Picking a win. All right. Really interesting game here. From this far away, it feels like I have no idea how FSU is going to look under Taggart. Are you picking a win or a loss? It's at FSU. So this one's, like you said, the most interesting game on the schedule for me. Because I do not believe in Taggart's ability to be a head coach based upon a long track record of rather questionable results as a head coach. Done some really good things. Done some very questionable things. Florida State is is much more talented than we are, first of all. They are. They're appreciably more talented, but not so much so that a coach couldn't overcome it. So I lean towards saying Florida State's going to win this game, which would be the obvious lean. 
But this will be way more insightful towards the end of the year. And that's why this will be so much fun. Right now, I'm going to I'm gonna pick a loss, primarily based upon the talent and the fact that I think that offense can be really, really good. I'm not sure we can match that in that kind of game. All right, so we've finished out. I picked an 8-4 and four result. You picked a 7-5 and five result. We're pretty close on a lot of these. I, I don't know. As I'm walking through it, I alternately felt like, man, we could win every game and we could lose every game except for those three. It's going to be a wild season potentially in the swamp. All right, let's do a few more predictions here, James. Let's talk about some of the national games. Okay, Alan. This is one of my favorite segments each and every week. Just as you and I pick the slate, my excitement level just just peaks. It like crescendos to this just fantastic place of all of these games I can't wait to see. We're going to start with Texas. Tom Herman's Texas team, a, a breakout candidate this year to be really good against a, a DJ Durkin's Maryland team is in the midst of incredible turmoil based upon serious allegations there. And yet, Texas only favored by 13 and a half this year. Maryland stunned them last year at Austin. Who do you have here? I'm going to take Texas. I think their arrows pointing up. Maryland, who knows what we're going to get from them. I can't touch them. I actually wouldn't bet this game at all, but I'll take Texas in the 13 and a half. Yeah, I actually love this game, and I love to bet on it, and I would take Texas all day, every day. I feel very strongly about that one. Uh, Texas covering the spread there. FAU, the Fighting Lane Kiffins, very talented. Joey Freshwater walking into Norman. Joey, very talented team heading into Oklahoma. Only a 21-point underdog. Mm. Interesting line, interesting line. No Baker Mayfield. What do you got here? I mean, I I would love to take FAU here. I Oklahoma's talented up and down the roster, even though they're replacing Baker. If Kyler Murray is competent, they're going to freaking wax him. But it's intriguing. 21 is a decent number. I, I like FAU here. A lot of turnover at Oklahoma. Baker Mayfield thinks that uh, that Murray is going to be better than himself. So if that means anything, then this is a dumb pick by me. But I don't know. Lane Kiffin has got a, a really weird Juco slash hood roster down there. But we'll see if he can put it together. Tennessee. This is the game I'm looking most forward to, by the way. <laughs> You're a versus, versus West Virginia. My boy, Will Greer. 10-point favorite over Tennessee. I cannot wait to watch this game. I am more excited about watching Will Greer play this year, I'll just admit it, than the Gators. And I have no reason to, to, to just be sad about that. I love it. I love the way the guy plays quarterback. Uh, I don't bet on college football. If I did, I couldn't put enough money down on West Virginia at 10 points there. That feels like stealing to me. So maybe there's something wrong there, but that's an incredible line. Yeah, the fear, obviously, is West Virginia's defense is absolutely awful. Uh, there's a lot of expectation on West Virginia this year, but I agree with you. Uh, this goes to show the recruiting ranking differences. West Virginia is inferior to Tennessee with regards to talent on the field. But Will Greer, to me, has got to be worth more than 10 points in this game. And that's what I'll go with. I think Will Greer... Who's playing quarterback at Tennessee? Exactly. I mean, come on. No one even knows. That's the point. So you got to think 10 points, right? Yeah, I like West Virginia to cover that one. All right, Michigan. Michigan. On the road against Notre Dame. What a classic football game that we get in week one. What a classic game to have. Notre Dame favored by one point. A lot of people are high on both these teams this year. Not a believer in Notre Dame. Like Michigan, this feels easy for me. Even though it's on the road, Michigan, I'm definitely taking that. Yeah, with Jim McElwain being the wide receivers coach in Michigan, you got to think that gives him the nod there. You know, expertise <laughs> and game coaching skill. Uh, <laughs> I like Michigan here. I think I think if Michigan's schedule wasn't so incredibly difficult, 
this would be a great year for them. They have all the pieces. I think Notre Dame also talented, but I'm with you. I I, I actually think they're going to struggle this year. So I'm going to I'm going to take Michigan here. Yeah, Michigan better quarterback with Shea Patterson than they've had under the Harbaugh era. Yeah, I expect Harbaugh to redeem himself this season. All right, Louisville playing Alabama, and oh no, surprise here. It's like Alabama's playing against an FCS school, a 24 and a half point favorite over a non Lamar Jackson. Louisville. That feels low to me. I, I'm going to take Bama and the points there. Yeah, I think this could be one of Bama's best teams under Nick Saban. Unfortunately, he's seeming to do what Nick Saban does best, which is have a really hard time deciding between an obviously excellent quarterback who has a ceiling potential that could obliterate everyone and a floor guy in Jalen Hurts, who's the most boring, abysmal thrower I have seen at a major program. Yet, we're still in a quarterback battle. Stop doing this to me, Nick Saban. I thought you had passed that and you were going to actually be an exciting team to watch. I would hate you no less, but still. That's what it is. I think Bama covers that by 50. I don't even know. That feels like an easy win. I agree with you, Alan. Miami, heading into Death Valley, three and a half point favorites in this one. Mark Rick's an incredibly quick turnaround job there at Miami. You know, I, I would be tempted to take LSU in the points. You know, being an underdog at home is, is rare for LSU. I don't know, though. Miami, I, I feels like they're doing something right now. I like Mark Rick as a coach in Miami specifically. I, I hope that he falls on his face. You know, it would be better for us recruiting-wise, but I don't think that's going to happen, so I'm going to take Miami. Yeah, if Ed Orgeron wasn't here again, I'd, I think I'd like LSU here, but I just can't. You've got to choose, I think, the more consistent coach here. I'm going to take Miami. Virginia Tech at FSU. This is going to be a really interesting one. What does FSU look like? What's new FSU putting out there? Virginia Tech on the rise under another a well-thought-of coach. Florida State favored by 7.5. Virginia Tech quietly had a pretty rough offseason. A decent number of guys suspended. And I don't know. That that alone makes me tempted to pick FSU. But I can't take – I can't give up points in this game. So I'm going to have to take Virginia Tech. Yeah, I like FSU here, actually. I, again, I think FSU had an anomaly season last year where everything went wrong at the fan. Very talented roster. Francois back at quarterback. Still a little bit questionable at the O-line. But I, I like I like Florida State here. Uh, say what you will about Taggart's coaching. We're going to find out a lot about this right out of the gate. All right, the big one. What a treat. What a treat to finish off week one. Washington at Auburn. Love this game. Auburn I'm, minus 1.5. 1, 1. Yeah, 5. I'm so intrigued by this. This is neutral sites. This is pretty close to even, pretty close to a pick em. So whatever team you like here, just take them. I'm going to go Auburn. I'm always, high, I'm always too high on Auburn. I think they were my dark horse national championship, and they won like four games one year. They are so intriguing. If they can find somebody to run the ball consistently, they're going to be tough to beat. So, yeah, give me Auburn. I'm going to pick Auburn here because Washington is is vastly inferior talent-wise. I think Chris Peterson is one of the best football coaches in the country. He gets more out of his talent than anyone else does. And if you look at the composite rankings, Washington's in the mid-20s. Auburn's in the you know 5th, 6th, 7th range. That's a significant difference. Significant difference. It doesn't mean Washington can't win this game because they totally can. Yeah. Especially when you look at how well I think Peterson prepares the team. Where, where you look at Gus Malzahn, there's a lot of head-scratching in-game moments that occur. Fascinating matchup for those reasons. I like Auburn here. This is not a bowl game. This is a game where the SEC is amped up. I think the SEC does well in these openers. Uh, I expect that to continue here. But either way, what a, what a great what a great game we have in front of us on that one. Looking forward to it. Okay, James. The dominant topic over the last couple of weeks has been Urban Meyer. People who don't know about football are asking me about Urban Meyer. Especially intriguing for our UF community. I ha- I harbor less ill will towards the man than I think a lot of Gator Nation. 
Let me ask you this particular question and then you can expound on it. Let's rewind this to last year. And let's say this situation is happening last year and Ohio state, you know, maybe they flipped a coin here and they kept him. Maybe last year they fired him. Would you, do you think UF would fire, would hire urban Meyer when, after we fired McIlwain and we had a coaching vacancy, if that scenario existed, would we have hired urban Meyer? Such an interesting question. Uh, I'm going to say no. And I think it would be because if Ohio state fired him, it would look as though Florida thought that offense wasn't significant enough. Mm-hmm. And I think politically, you're, you're touching the third rail, so to speak. And that's that's like lighting your values on fire. And one thing Florida's been really consistent with, even though we've had our own scandals and our own issues, uh, is that the athletic director and department wants to run a clean program. So because of that, no. But I would be willing to bet that there would be a whole lot of boosters, including some of those who quote-unquote hate Urban Meyer, that would have been stumping to hire Urban Meyer. And they would have been saying the same thing that Ohio State boosters are saying now. There's no proof. He didn't know. If he didn't know, it was low level. He instituted policies. They would all of a sudden find themselves on the opposite side of that argument. So uh, I think that's interesting. And I think that the answer would be he would absolutely get hired again by a program. I'm not sure what program would be able to take that bullet so quickly thereafter, though. I feel like you'd have to let that settle. For yeah, year, with like his history sabbatical. here, and he got blamed for it. He got blamed for Aaron Hernandez, which I always thought was interesting after Hernandez did all the stuff when he was on the Patriots, or at least most of it. But Urban Meyer got blamed. That's his rep. I don't know if he could have lived that out here again. I just wanted to say, like, were we, are we so desperate we would hire him? Maybe so. I think you're kind of right. You know, when this first happened, I, in light of our current situation, like, culturally, I thought he was going to get fired. Then I stopped for a moment and was like, Ohio State, maybe more than any school, maybe more than Alabama and Saban, would do anything possible to keep him. Urban's still a young guy. He's going to be a top five team every year. Were you surprised that they held on to him, or do you think, yeah, that was about what I expected? Well, when we first heard the news, I thought, he's not going to make it. And then we kind of went through the narrative, and we said, okay, well, the longer it goes, he'll make it. And I know the day before the news came out, I think our thread had predicted pretty accurately that he was going to get suspended for a handful of games. Mm-hmm. And the primary reason was whether you're for or against or whatever the case may be, there just wasn't a smoking gun to say he knew. I think we can all speculate he did know, but speculation is not going to make you guilty in a courtroom. And I think amongst the board of trustees, they were uncomfortable firing him for something they couldn't prove he knew about. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of things we could spend 20 minutes talking about, like, you know, should the head coach know in this situation, I think he probably knew because this was a, a an extra special situation where his wife certainly knew a lot mm-hmm. about it. But, you know, Alan, I work very closely with the co-founder of my investment firm, and he could easily go on Amazon and order whatever he wanted. He could also take whatever pictures he wanted of himself that I would never know about. So sometimes I think the thought that, like, the head coach knows what the assistant coaches are doing with their cell phones is ridiculous. You don't even know what your kids are doing with their cell phones. You don't know what your wife or husband is doing with their cell phones. You just don't know everything that's going on. It's impossible so some of that stuff goes too far, but regardless, I think that the state of urban and the state of Ohio State uh, would be similar across any major program. No major program would have wanted to fire urban. Therefore, they would have had to have had a direct smoking gun to fire him. And I think what we saw was what happened. Um, that can be very frustrating depending on how you view it. I think certainly his apology was was pathetic and horrible and did him 
no service for what kind of person he was. I think if he came out and apologized the way he should have, this would have felt differently. But that apology was not even really an apology. And I felt like that was a little callous. And I think that kind of shows you who Urban tends to be rumored is, is he's sort of a coaching robot. And uh, you know that part's frustrating for me. I don't know. What are your thoughts on it? I try not to like dive too far into it because I was like, they're going to be talking about this for so long and I'm going to get fatigued of it. I think that, you know, they were going to do whatever it took. They weren't going to fire him unless they had to. Or you saw the opposite with McElwain, our athletic department. We're like, oh, this is a thing that maybe we could turn into a way to fire this guy. The opposite was true as Urban. They were, they were going to go to every length to keep him. Now, whether you agree with that or not is a totally opposite thing. So I'm not surprised he stayed because of who he is in college football, whether that's right or wrong. College football is a black eye for it. There's a lot of stuff going on in the Big Ten right now that's difficult. But when the games are being played, it's the best sport. If you can get past some of the other stuff, and it's hard to sometimes, I love college football. I'm glad it's back. Can't wait for this weekend's set of games. Yeah, I echo that entirely, and that's not to minimize what's going on. In fact, it's the no. opposite. It's, yes. There are a lot of character issues that are going on in our society now in all sports, and especially in football that certainly need to be addressed. Uh, But as you mentioned, the overwhelming majority of participants this weekend in these games are are not doing things wrong. You know, 99% of them are not doing things wrong. And you have to remember that when you want to take a boycott against football or a boycott against athletes or whatever. The majority of them are not doing that stuff. And the most of them are normal kids doing normal stuff, playing a sport that we love to watch and enjoy and consume. And I look forward to doing that this weekend as well. With that, we come to the close of this megasode. We've got a tradition now, right, of every year in the first one doing this huge megasode. Hey, if you love the episode, hated the episode, had feedback for us, please hit us up. We want to improve the show, and the only way we can do that is when you guys let us know whether you like something, you want something else, you don't want something. So hit us up on Facebook, hit us up on Twitter, uh, find us on Patreon. Any way that you can message us is great, and we look forward to seeing all of you back right here next week when we actually have some film and some game to break down. Love you guys. We'll see you next week. news from Sprint. The wait is finally over. The new Samsung Galaxy Note 10 with the powerful S Pen has arrived at Sprint and you can get it for 50% off with a Sprint Flex lease. That's right. Get the power of performance and productivity of the Galaxy Note 10 for less than $20 per month. There's never been a better time to switch. To learn more, visit your local Sprint store, sprint.com slash Galaxy Note 10 or call 800 Sprint 1 today. 1979 a month after 1980 monthly credit applied within two bills with approved credit 18 month lease and new line of service. If canceled early, remain balance due. Exclusive tax coverage and offer not available everywhere through the activation fee restrictions apply. Of all the sounds you'll hear this summer. This might be your new favorite. You're blending up the new chocolate chip iced cap at Tim Hortons. Real chocolate chips blended into an iced cap for a sweet summer treat. It's Tim Hortons frozen take on a cappuccino. And it just might be the best sound of summer. Hurry into Tim Hortons for the new chocolate chip iced cap. Limited time at participating restaurants.